Welcome to the October 2022 episode of Right on Prime. I'm Heidi James. And I'm Vanessa Cardi. We're excited to have you here. A warm welcome to you. And Wowzers, do we ever have a great show lined up for our listeners this month? We certainly do. You and Hobie started off with discussing what it's like to be the doctor's doctor where we provide medical care to our colleagues. And then over on The Generalist, Jake Anderson joins me to talk about C. difficile. And we have a a lovely educational piece with Justin Bailey, our Idahoan family doctor, who tells us all we need to know about prostatitis. And then Dusty Narducci, our sports med and eating disorder doc, and I rant about diet culture. And in addition to that, Penny Wilson shares some pearls about contraception during perimenopause. On Rural Med, I talk about a young girl with a fever, and of course, Steve and Ken are back with PCMA. But before we launch into a case, we have some exciting news to share here. You might have noticed that we've had a few urgent care topics thrown into the mix recently. Well, consider those as little teasers for what is officially being launched this month. UC Max, the monthly urgent care podcast. Here at Right on Prime, we're going to carry one urgent care piece a month from UC Max going forwards. And this month, it is a piece on NSAIDs with Gita Pensa and Brian Hayes. So tune in for more of that awesome urgent care content. Exciting! It's so exciting! Well, I'm already excited, yet also kind of tired after discussing all that's coming up on the show. That's a lot, Vanessa. We have a lot packed into October, that's for sure. And before we jump into the show, I want to take a few minutes to answer a question from an MRAP listener, not a Right on Prime listener, an MRAP listener who lives in Madison, Wisconsin. And they wrote into MRAP to Swami and Jan and the gang to say, to a paraphrase, what in the heck is quadruple therapy for heart failure? And can you please review the new heart failure guidelines for me? So Swami and Jan kicked that over to us because as generalists, well, we deal with heart failure and all of its outpatient emergency department and inpatient glory. So let's have at her. Yeah, quadruple therapy for heart failure. I kind of wish we were still back in the era of dual therapy. Remember those simpler days when it was maybe a bit of beta blocker, an ACE or an ARB, some diuretics possibly thrown in for good measure. How and when did we get to quadruple therapy? And what, pray tell, are all of these meds that are in this quadruple therapy? Why are there so many? Take it away, Heidi. Try and break this down for us. Well, you are not alone. I had to sit down and put my thinking cap on to sort my way through this. Think long and hard. There have been a lot of changes in heart failure. And what the quadruple therapy mostly focuses on is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So these are people whose ejection fraction is less than 40%. So these are the folks we're talking about here. And the guideline we're referring to is the 2022 joint guideline that came from the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, and the Heart Failure Society of America. So this is their guideline on heart failure. And these came out in April of 2022. And I'm not going to propose that you and I critique this guideline because Steve and Ken, our PCMA lit review gurus, are going to do so in an upcoming episode. You and I are just going to really focus on the what and the why of quadruple therapy. Well, I can't guarantee that there won't be a little bit of ranting in there, but I will do my best. (laughs) I will do my best to keep it straightforward. So let's try and keep it simple. What drugs are we talking about here when we talk about quadruple therapy? Okay, so there are four categories of drugs that these groups say we should aim to have our patients with reduced ejection heart failure on, okay? Group number one. The first group is the drugs that target the renin-angiotensin system, and these drugs fall into the angiotensin receptor neprolysin inhibitor category, which we're going to call here on out the ARNIs. Come with me if you want to live. 
Okay, so think about Arnold Schwarzenegger, a cute little diminutive Arnold, an Arnie. Okay, got it? All right, number one, Arnie's. Come with me if you want to live. Group number two. Okay, number two, tried and true, the beta blockers. Nothing new here. We still use beta blockers. Okay, got it. I can handle that. Group number three. Number three is the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. You probably know this better just by the name spironolactone. Okay, yes, spironolactone. That doesn't scare me. It's interesting to see it kind of so upfront in this recommendation, but I've got you. Group number four. Okay, and lastly, time to put your diabetes-tinted glasses on because number four is the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, the SGLT2s. They're here and they're staying, apparently. Yes, it seems that they are here and they are spreading, but yes. Okay, so that's quite a lot to unpack. I mean, beta blockers, sure, that's not too much of a surprise. The mineral corticoid receptor agonists, again, as I said before, it makes sense. The SGLT2 inhibitors, those diabetes meds that we all know about, I'm still getting my head around seeing these for heart failure, but I've definitely heard about their use in heart failure, and I'm certainly seeing more and more of my patients taking them. But I need you to tell me more about those renin-angiotensin drugs, okay? The Arnie's. Come with me if you want to live. First of all, this sounds like there's actually two drugs in this, because you mentioned angiotensin receptor inhibitors and neprilysin inhibitors. So is this actually quintuple therapy disguised as quadruple therapy? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is definitely quintuple therapy. So we need to break down this RNA character a little bit because actually there's only one drug that's commercially available right now. That's an RNA, but this is a combination drug. There is the neprilysin inhibitor Secubitril and the ARB Valsartan, okay? So it is a bit confusing because many of us, when we hear a drug that ends in trill or rill, we think it's an ACE inhibitor. But Secubitril is not an ACE inhibitor, it's a neprilysin inhibitor, okay? So a neprilysin inhibitor and an ARB. And this medication, according to the studies that influence the guidelines or the way they were interpreted, are supposed to keep people alive and feeling better for longer, which is why these guidelines say that Arnie's are first line. That's right. So these drugs are your first choice, and you choose it over monotherapy with either an ACE or an ARB. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is kind of hard to get my head around because it's always been ACE or ARB first line for a very long time. And they also say that if your patient is on an ACE or an ARB, stop it and put them on an Arnie. Okay, so even if your patient was on monotherapy with an ACE or an ARB, you're going to swap them out with an Arnie and then add on the others. Got it. This is a pretty big change. I mean, I know Steve and Ken talked about this medication on the May show earlier this year, and they were not really impressed with the study that led to these recommendations with regards to the Arnie. Actually, let me quote what they said about the study's impact on the ACC guidelines. Quote, these guideline changes seem to be based solely on this one flawed and stopped early industry-funded study with multiple authors having conflict of interest with the drug maker. End quote. Insert rant or head exploding. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm so looking forward to hearing them weigh in on this guideline. It will just be vicious and delicious. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to the SGLT2s. Okay, to be clear, these are for heart failure patients, whether or not they have diabetes, right? So regardless of their diabetes status. Right. Their use has been spreading far beyond diabetes and more recently into heart failure here. Because studies show that those with reduced ejection fraction heart failure are admitted less frequently and have better cardiovascular outcomes if they're on an SGLT2. And I think we'd all agree that less time in the hospital is good. 
And one study found a relative risk reduction of 73% in mortality over two years. I know it's a relative risk reduction, but hey, less death is good, as our friend Andrew Belt says. And it seems in general that these drugs are well-tolerated, as per the studies, and that they do slow progression of renal dysfunction, which we see a lot of in heart failure, so that could be a very positive thing. And of note, these guidelines also recommend SGLT2 in those with preserved ejection fraction. Okay, so we've got the ARNIs, we've got the SGLT2s, and then the guideline authors, of course, want us to also include the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, example, spironolactone, and the beta blockers. So those are the four, really, five medications. Now, this sounds to me like a lot of medications, because chances are, if you have heart failure reduced ejection fraction, in other words, HEFRAF, then you also probably have a lot of other medical problems going on as well type 2 diabetes, possibly, ischemic heart disease, maybe some renal failure. So it sounds like we are setting our patients up for a world of possible medication interactions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Potential interactions galore. And the cost, Vanessa, oh, my goodness. Like, who can afford all of these new medications? Certainly anyone without fantastic insurance is not going to be able to afford this new Arnie medication, let alone all the other ones. Yeah, and I would expect, given how all these different medications function, that you're probably going to be getting some hypotension in here. I mean, especially if you add in a loop diuretic into the mix at some point, this seems like we could be setting ourselves up for a bit of a problem in that regard. Yeah, yeah. It actually reminds me of the very first patient I had who we attempted quadruple therapy on. It was a, an inpatient with HEFREF whose blood pressure was just barely compatible with sentient life. So We got him on the triple therapy, doing the best we can. And then cardiology decided to start an SGLT2 because, you know, quad therapy. But yikes, just that little drop you can see with an SGLT2 inhibitor was awful. So theoretically, patients should be able to handle this. I mean, I stand corrected. The patients in the study could theoretically handle quad therapy. But my N of one here really says otherwise. What have you heard about the uptake on these guidelines so far? Well, you know, it's too soon to really have a sense of how well quadruple therapy is being adopted into practice. But we do have info back on triple therapy days. So this is not that long ago. That was beta blockers, RNAs, and and MRAs before we introduced the SGLT2s. And roughly only one-third of heart failure patients were on all three of the meds. And of those, less than 1% were at the target doses. So we were not succeeding with triple therapy. Heaven only knows how we're going to do with quadruple therapy. (laughs) Well, we're certainly persistent. (laughs) Points for stubbornness. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, uptake's going to be phenomenal. I can just see it. Oh, yes, it will. It will be fantastic. Well, I will definitely look forward to hearing Steve and Ken's take on this, or hopefully their skewering of this guideline. And in the meantime, at least I know why heart failure patients are coming back from their hospital stays and cardiology visits on so many new medications. Yeah, and on that somewhat nonplussed note, uh, let's jump into the rest of the show. Yes, I think it's time to onwards and upwards. Allons-y. See you on the other side for the summary. Vamanos. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hey, Hobie. Hey. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. How have you been? I've been great. I've been great. And guess what I did the other day? What did you do? I was a responsible human being, and I went to see my family physician. What? You did? Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> that is crazy. 
You actually did the thing that we tell all our patients to do, which is, please come see me for a visit. Right? It's like, this is my job, you know, to help you. (laughs) Good for you. Good for not trying to be your own doctor. But why are you bringing this up? Right. Yeah, we don't usually get into too much personal detail (laughs) on the show. But every time I go to see my doctor, who Mm -hmm. is also a friend and a colleague, every time I go, I'm just reminded of a few things. And one is like, just what a great doctor she is. And also how incredible it is that she cares for so many of our colleagues. Like she has a lot of physicians as patients, probably more than all the rest of us combined. And it's so great as a doctor to have a quality person to look after me. But that being said, I know from my experience in looking after physicians, it can be really challenging to care for our colleagues. And I know that looking after colleagues sure has been stretching for me as a physician, and it's not always been easy. Yeah, you know, I'll say the first time this happened to me is when I was a resident. And uh, I was on a rotation, an off-service rotation, and I was rotating with one of the other residents. And he looked at me, he goes, hey, would you be my doctor? And I said, what? (laughs) And he goes, yeah, he goes, like, I've really enjoyed working with you this month, and you seem very smart, and I need to get a primary care doctor. Like, would you be my doctor? And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, I really wasn't sure. And it wasn't that I didn't want to be his doctor. I was like, what are, what are the rules around this? Like, can yeah. I be taking care of a colleague? And I'm a resident. Can I take care of another resident? Like, how does this work? It wasn't something that I ever had to sort of think about. And all of a sudden, I had to think about it. And I was like, what, 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 is, what am I supposed to do here? And so certainly, it's evolved from there. And, you know, we have a very busy practice. And I would say, for a lot of us, when we seek primary care, we're doing it within our own group, right? And we're saying, hey, can you take care of me? Can you be my primary care doc? Would you see my family? You know, we, a lot of us have kids and bringing them in as well. And so, you know, I think it's a awesome privilege to be able to do it, but there is a lot of responsibility that comes with that. But I'm glad we had the chance to take a few minutes and parse out some of the, like, the challenges and the obstacles in being the physician's physician. So there's an article in AFP in 2013 that looked at this. And right out of the gate, they kind of describe a case where a junior colleague is asked to take care of a senior, well-respected colleague as a patient and talks about the sense of intimidation this can bring. I know this has certainly been true for me, right? And it's like almost peak imposter syndrome, right? (laughs) Where uh, if you're a physician and somebody you respect, somebody who's more senior than you, somebody where you turn and when you're clinically stuck, you ask them to help you out. All of a sudden they say, well, now I'll be your patient. (laughs) And you look at them, you think, oh, what could I possibly do for this person that they couldn't do themselves, right? And so I think that's a very challenging, challenging situation. Oh, you're right. Like, I have to chant my, like, you've got this. Like, you know your stuff, Heidi James. You can do this. Like, I don't really say that out loud, but in my mind, sometimes I'm like, okay, you know what you're doing. You've got this. I'm glad you don't say it out loud. I'm not sure your patients would I got this. You could do this, Hobie. Keep going. Can you imagine doing that in the exam room? Oh, my gosh. Did I say that or just think it? I got to think of a lie fast. And I, like, I don't find it as, as difficult with colleagues who are in different specialties, mm-hmm. but certainly caring for other family physicians who are still either practicing or have practiced and who do what I do day in and day out. You know, that challenges my, my confidence. And it's part of what we do is being able to portray that confidence because patients like to have a doctor who knows what they're doing. And that's something I want to offer to my patients is, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm the right doctor for the job, but sometimes I have to dig deep for that when I'm caring for colleagues. Yeah, I think it's really hard. You know, it's hard to remember that they're a patient and not a colleague and a doctor. 
And, you know, I, I'm always tempted to sort of say, okay, well, why don't you tell me what you think we should do here? Obviously, <laughs> okay. you've been thinking about your chest pain for a while. So what do you think? We, you know, how do you think we should manage this? And so, you know, I, I think that temptation is always there. And, you know, I think partly it's a respect, you know, honoring the fact that they, they have special knowledge, right? I mean, they're either a colleague or a specialty physician, and they went through the same training or medical school and other issues. And so I think Partly when I ask that question, it's acknowledging, right, that I'm not a, a secret holder of knowledge here. Yeah. But I mean, I think we try to do this with all patients when we try to involve them in their care. We try to ask them about their feeling, their ideas, their functions, and their expectations about what's bothering them. I think it's a little bit different when the patient is a professional, especially a physician, because they almost kind of know what's happening as you're trying to do it to them. Right? And sometimes when their expectations about how something can or should be investigated or managed is different than my own, that yes. creates the opportunity to, to come to a compromise. And it's interesting with my physician patients, I find myself compromising more towards their expectations than I might with other patients. Like mm -hmm. if some patient, if a patient comes in and says, you know, I've had back pain for two weeks, I want an MRI. <laughs> it's very easy to say, no, we don't need an MRI at this right. point. But with a right. physician colleague, I'm more likely to perhaps lean yes. towards their management expectations than I might yes. be otherwise, you know, with a, obviously a back and forth discussion. But uh, I'm more pliable, I guess, might be a, a better way to say it. Yeah, I think that's always the case. And there's always this temptation to kind of order excessive testing or to be more aggressive and expedite things that maybe you normally say, well, the normal natural course of the disease might get better on its own, right? But th there's a sense that because they're a colleague and the stakes seem higher, we just kind of push ahead. Yeah. And I think part of my tendency to order the test they wonder is appropriate is because over time I've realized that if a, a physician patient doesn't receive the testing or the caring they expect to get from me, they may ask mm -hmm. their colleague to order the test yeah, sure. or to do something. And part of me thinks I would much rather keep all the care in with their physician rather than placing that burden or that awkwardness on a, another colleague. Yes, the old curbside consult, right? You're on the golf course, you're in the grocery store, you're in the daycare pickup line, and all of a sudden, oh, hey, good to see you. <laughs> By the way, I, I need a favor. So, yes. Right, I was talking to my family doctor about my back pain, and they didn't think I needed an MRI. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, we, we really need the MRI. Right? <laughs> And I sometimes struggle with how to address this with my physician patients. And initially, I became upset about it or took offense that they were seeking care from other people. But then I realized, like, this is what we all do when we're concerned or upset. We turn to other people around us to help us out. Uh, it just so happens that physicians' friends are often other physicians. Like, I usually will discuss it with them when they're in and say, hey, I noticed we talked about your back and we talked about this, but then I got this MRI. Is this something you wanted to talk about? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's really tricky and it, it's often very frustrating and I've been in that situation too. And I think, you know, physicians treating each other on an informal basis and not involving or bypassing that patient's primary care physician, I think is really problematic. I mean, to be honest, right? Because I think there are some real blind spots there, which if you are not that person's primary care doctor, you don't have the full picture, right? They're just asking you to do something for them. And you're not doing what you would normally do, which is take a thorough and comprehensive look at this patient and sort of decide if that's the best thing for the patient. I would say the other things is that, you know, we have a lot of state laws and regulations around, like, when you see a patient, you should document something, right? right. You, should, you should have a plan in place. You should 
have a sense of like, there should be some kind of record of what happened. And often when the friend calls and says, well, I need the MRI, I say, great. And you just drop the MRI in. I don't know how many of us are taking the time to document the note or to say, oh, well, did you do a physical exam? Did you even ask questions that we normally would ask? And so I think for all those reasons, that gets really, really tricky. This touches on the issues of setting and respecting boundaries because our physician colleagues are unique because they know how to find us all the time. <laughs> you know, even though you and I don't work together, I could still find you. That's right. right. Like you mm-hmm. could call my hospital and find me any time of the day or night. And uh, that's not something that our non-physician patients are able to do. And I think each of us needs to figure out how open are we to being approached outside of our offices, outside of regular care parameters to helping our patients. And like my physician, she's very open to being contacted at times outside of a scheduled appointment, whereas I'm a little bit more like Fort Knox. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about it at the office. I'll get my secretary to give you a call and we'll schedule an appointment. That's more so my approach. So so you don't mean you're full of gold? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe, you know, family physicians are hard to come across here. And if you get one, you feel like you... Hearts of gold. That's right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I think also probably depends a little bit on your practice environment. I think if you are a solo doc in a very small town, right, that you are going to have to come to grips with people finding you or bumping into you or running into you outside of work. And that may be kind of part and parcel of the work that you do. And then I think on the flip side, if you're part of a very big city or in a big multi-specialty group, uh, you probably have more systems in place to try to handle those kind of bumping conversations that happen. So, But I I do think consistency is the key here. And it does feel morally and, and ethically kind of in a gray area when you say, well, if my patient is a physician, I do this. And if my patient isn't a physician, I do that. That doesn't seem right to us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know we can't fully generalize Hobie, but what I found, I guess with myself when I go to my doctor or when other physicians come to see me, is by the time they come to see us, they we, we're pretty sure we have a dread disease. And, <laughs> because we know too much. We know yes. too much. Yes. Like if a patient with a non-medical background comes to us about their twitching eyelid, they're worried, they're bothered by the switching eyelid, whereas a colleague might be like, I have a severe neurodegenerative process going on, and we need to discuss my code status. (laughs) We're far quicker to catastrophize our symptoms. I mean, just before we start recording, I showed you my sprained pinky. And instead of saying, I sprained my pinky, I said... I wonder if I have rheumatoid arthritis and I wonder if I need to get testing for that. So I am one of those physicians too, right? Yeah, and so, yeah, totally. uh, you know, I would just say that it's, I think it's, again, we know too much, right? And we have seen some of the consequences of diseases not being taken care of correctly or quickly. And, you know, I think it's only natural for us to kind of sometimes chase down those rabbit holes, right? And, and kind of get yeah. worried. But I, I think that's why it's really important to not be your own doctor, right? Okay. And to really have a good primary care doctor, right? Because then someone who is objective, who can see from a third-party perspective can say, uh, I think you're being a little bit catastrophizing here, right? And your twitchy eyelid is a twitchy eyelid and it doesn't need you know, an ALS workup, at least not at this moment. moment right. right? Yeah, just like you probably don't need anti-CCP antibodies <laughs> and, a, and a rheumatoid factor, not at, not at this point. You don't need an MRI, Hobart Lee. Man. <laughs> Can I have it? Please, please, please. 
I was unable to track down this article to send it to you ahead of our conversation, but I read an article several years ago that said that physicians are more likely to decline treatments for various conditions. Like, let's say they have a cancer, they're more likely mm-hmm. to decline treatments because they, we will use that, we're so used to seeing the severe complications. Like the people who come to see us are the people with problems. We don't see the people who do fine and have the good results from some treatments. So in some ways, we shoot ourselves in the foot by just remembering the bad things that happen to people rather than being able to look at it objectively and say, yeah, you know what? Maybe this chemo is actually a good option for me. Yeah, it's a it's a selection bias issue, right? Yeah, it is. I could say for all my diabetics that I prescribe insulin, it doesn't seem to work because they always come back and their sugars are still high, right? <laughs> <laughs> and true. so it doesn't take into effect all the patients who you prescribe insulin, their sugar comes down and they don't see you as much, right? And so yeah. like, I think that's the challenge is that, and for whatever reason, our brains are hardwired to remember the negative and the things that burn us rather than all the successes, right? And so it is very difficult for us as physicians and as patients to kind of overcome that notion. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. It sure is. And sometimes that's the role of the family doctor is to gently challenge somebody's preconceived notions and ideas about something. Mm -hmm. And I'd argue that physicians hold these maybe even more strongly than than other people when it comes to different treatments and uh, ways to manage illness. The one last comment I'd make is about confidentiality, right? So I think that's really important. It doesn't matter who the patient is. They're still a patient and they're entitled to all the same benefits of confidentiality. So, you know, I would say be careful about those hallway consults with your physician patients, right? Other people can hear, right? And and that creates HIPAA issues. And so, you know, I think it's always a wise thing to ask your physician colleague and say, hey, I'd love to see you in the office. I'd love for you to schedule a virtual visit. You know, or can we even schedule just a more private time to talk where you can really do the work as a physician rather than being caught in the middle of a hallway, you know, where you're on your way to do something else? Yeah, it's so true. It doesn't matter who the patient is, whether a physician or non-physician, they're still our patients. So it's good for us to work on getting past our imposter syndrome, to trust our abilities to be a doctor and to work on establishing appropriate boundaries and to make sure that we allow them to be a patient and not encourage them to try to manage their own care. Yeah, and you know, patients have choice, right? So your colleague made a decision to see you, right? They could have seen anybody in the office and yet they chose to come and see you. And so I think, you know, from that standpoint, I always try to remember like, hey, they see something in my ability or they see something in the care, or maybe I was the only person who had an opening, but they have come to see me. And so it's my job to try to help them to the best of my ability. Taking it from that perspective has really helped me sort of try to give appropriate and safe care to my patients who are physicians. Yeah, absolutely. And caring for our colleagues can make us feel even more thankful for those who look after us. Absolutely. I got a 50-year-old man in cardiac arrest and our building just lost power. All right, give me jumper cables, rubber gloves, 3,000 grams of Sol Medrol. Stack. What are you, MacGyver? No, I'm the generalist. Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi, and today I'm once again joined by Jake Anderson for the hospitalist topics that we like to cover here on Right on Prime. And today we are going to be talking about C. difficile. So thank you, Jake, for joining us, and why don't you take it away? Hey, Vanessa. So let's start by reviewing an all-too-common scenario for our hospitalized patients. 
get a call from nursing staff. He mentions that your patient, who's currently day five of an admission for a recurrent soft tissue infection, has developed loose stools. As it happens, she's had four loose, foul-smelling bowel movements since just the start of his shift this morning. And I probably don't need to say another word, right? There are probably a number of our listeners who are instinctively throwing up that shaking fist to curse what they know this is. C. diff. C. diff! Ah yes, C. difficile. Unfortunately, one of the more common healthcare-associated infections and something that appears to be increasing pretty significantly in prevalence worldwide. Yeah, which is why I'm eager to, to short my knowledge here and, and make sure I'm up to date on all things C. diff. We're going to focus specifically on, on some of the nuances that I, I find confusing. So the nuances around testing and then some of the nuances around treatment because it's not all one size fits all. That sounds really good because this can get very confusing. There are a few really helpful resources out there to help guide the approach to C. diff, and we're going to lean heavily on the Infectious Disease Society of America's, or IDSA's, Clinical Practice Guideline for Clostridium Difficile Infection in Adults and Children. It was last published in 2018, but they did do a focused update in 2021 that included some important changes to treatment recommendations, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. So let's start with the basics. And actually, C. diff is now short for Clostridioides difficile. They like to change things on us every now and then. It was previously Clostridium difficile. In addition to being a common healthcare-associated infection, it's actually the most common culprit of hospital-acquired diarrhea. And unfortunately, it isn't confined to the hospital. We're seeing increases in the community as well. So Clostridioides difficile is a spore-forming anaerobe, which is one of the reasons it has become such an issue in the hospital. Those pesky spores can be really, really tough to get rid of. C. diff has a number of different strains, of course. The strains that matter most to us clinically, though, are the ones that produce toxins, which then cause diarrhea and the GI issues. Risk factors. Now, aside from being in the hospital, being hospitalized, the big risk factors for developing a C. diff infection include antibiotic exposure, antibiotic exposure, antibiotic exposure, <laughs> oh, and being older aged. Oh, and did I mention antibiotic exposure? <laughs> yeah. And the longer someone is in the hospital and the longer or more antibiotics that they need increases their risk even further. Yeah, and the, the risk associated with antibiotic use actually lasts for up to three months after the antibiotic has stopped in some cases. I know PPIs have gotten a lot of attention as a possible risk factor for C. diff infection. And, and at least based on observational study, it does look like this is true. PPIs seem to increase the risk anywhere from one to two times the amount. And the key connection with these risk factors is that they all seem to set the patient up to be colonized by C. difficile, which can then lead to the toxin production and symptoms. Symptoms. Yeah, so let's talk about symptoms. So aside from diarrhea, which is three or more unformed stools in less than 24 hours in this case, patients may also have abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, or fever. Be specifically on the lookout for signs of severe or fulminant disease, which includes severe abdominal pain, distension, absence of diarrhea due to ileus or sepsis even. It's so unfair that you can have an absence of diarrhea as being a sign of C. diff. This is hard <laughs> right. to pick up. You need to have a high index of suspicion. Classification. So classification becomes really important when it comes to treatment. 
And so let's outline this a little bit. So severe disease is defined by the presence of leukocytosis and serum creatinine greater than 1.5 milligrams per deciliter. Severe disease is going to be more common in the elderly, those who have kidney disease, encephalopathy, hypoalbuminemia, hypotension, ascites, or over 10 unformed stools per day. And fulminant disease is defined as C. diff with the presence of shock, ileus, and megacolon. Precautions. If you suspect C. diff in a patient, first things first. So take extra precautions in contact with them while awaiting those test results. Extra precautions include using gowns and gloves when caring for them, and also hand hygiene. Hand hygiene is probably best through soap and water here because some of the alcohol-based products don't do the trick. And then it's really important to think about surface cleaning techniques. A lot of healthcare settings will use bleach-based disinfectants because that's more effective. Diagnostic testing. Now, when it comes to diagnosis, stool testing is going to lead you to the diagnosis. And there are a few different tests to do out there. Because colonization with C. diff is actually pretty common and no one particular test is perfect, many people actually advocate for a multi-step testing process that helps increase the sensitivity and specificity of our testing. There are four main types of stool testing, and they include glutamate dehydrogenase, the GDH assay, enzyme immunoassays, which detect toxin A and toxin B, nucleic acid amplification tests, NAT testing, and cell culture cytotoxicity assay or toxigenic culture. Now, there's a good chance the hospital or healthcare system that you work in has an established protocol for testing in terms of which tests to use first and then what to do, you know, if one is positive, so those if-then situations. So you're going to want to check with your local lab to find out what testing you do. Yeah, most algorithms focus on using three of these four tests. The, the one that's usually left out is culture testing. Culture testing is the gold standard, but it's expensive and takes a long time. The guidelines actually suggest multi-step testing with either GDH or NAAT testing combined with toxin testing. If that testing is discordant, then you can follow it up with either NAT if you did GDH, or you can do a culture. Yeah, so for instance, a common multi-step testing protocol would say start with GDH testing. If it's positive, do toxin testing. If GDH and toxin testing is positive, you've diagnosed CDF. If GDH is positive, but toxin testing is negative, consider the NAT testing. If GDH is negative, on the other hand, then it's a true negative and you can stop there. Now, some places will also do simultaneous GDH and toxin testing. And if they don't agree, in other words, one is positive and one is negative, you're going to just repeat both of the tests. Generally, a positive GDH or NAAT test with negative toxin testing suggests the patient is in a carrier state rather than experiencing an acute infection. Okay, so now a couple of additional pearls here on testing. First, do not repeat testing within seven days during the same episode of diarrhea. And in those patients who've had ileus and have a concern for C. diff, you can do a rectal swab to run these same tests rather than waiting for a stool sample. Other testing isn't generally required for diagnosis, but you may look for an elevated white blood cell count, evidence of colitis on imaging, or the pathognomonic pseudomembranes on endoscopy, if you see them. Treatment. Okay, so let's move on to treatment now. Treatment really depends on what episode of C. diff it is for the patient and how severe it is. And like we hinted at before, the IDSA changed their recommendations in the 2021 update. Your go-to antimicrobials for C. diff are fidaxomycin, vancomycin, and metronidazole. 
For a first episode that is either severe or non-severe, fidaxomycin is now preferred over vancomycin, though both are good options and both are given orally for 10 days. In non-severe disease, oral metronidazole is also an option if neither fidaxomycin or vancomycin is available. Now for fulminant disease, vancomycin orally or via an NG tube plus IV metronidazole should be used. And you can also consider vancomycin via the rectal tube if there's a paralytic ileus. Yeah, so that's all for first episode, right? Treating recurrent C. diff infection is slightly different. For first recurrence, fidaxomycin is still the preferred agent, either in standard dosing or in extended tapered dosing. An example of extended tapered dosing would be that you would give fidaxomycin twice daily for five days, followed by once every other day for 20 days. Vancomycin is also an option, again, in either standard dosing or as a tapered course. For vancomycin, a tapered course would look something like QID dosing for 10 to 14 days, followed by BID dosing for seven days, followed by daily dosing for seven days, and then every two to three days for two to eight weeks. This is a long haul for these patients. I always feel really bad when I'm talking about this many weeks of antibiotics. Yes. But we also have the option of adding an adjunctive therapy if this is a patient's first recurrence. We can add bezlotuximab. So what is bezlotuximab? Yeah, well, I'm glad you're saying it and not me. It's a monoclonal antibody therapy that can actually be given IV once during the administration of the primary treatment antibiotics. It's helpful in people who are experiencing recurrence or preventing future recurrence. You have to be cautious in those with heart failure. And actually, you could use it during an initial episode of C. diff infection if that infection is severe and the patient's at high risk for recurrence, like those who are 65 or older and those who are immunocompromised. For second recurrences and beyond, for those poor patients who keep getting C. diff, you have the same options as for the first recurrence. With the additional option, though, of vancomycin standard dosing followed by rifaximin for 20 days. Fecal transplant, or officially fecal microbiota transplantation, FMT, becomes an option as well. This becomes an option with subsequent recurrences. The IDSA says to actually consider it after two recurrences, so that would be three total C. diff infections. FMT appears to be very effective and safe with as high as a 76% cure rate without recurrence in patients with a history of recurrent C. diff. Summary. So let's summarize things to wrap this up. Okay, so you're going to want to consider C. difficile in hospitalized patients with acute diarrhea and risk factors like recent antibiotic use. Testing should be done in a multi-step manner using either GDH and toxin testing with NAT as the tiebreaker, or NAT and toxin testing with culture as the tiebreaker, if the two tests are discrepant. Fidoxomycin is the preferred agent for C. difficile infection, followed by vancomycin, or in non-severe disease, metronidazole is also an option. Recurrent C. diff infections can be treated with extended, tapered fidoxomycin or vancomycin. In second recurrence and beyond, vancomycin followed by rifaximin or fecal microbiota transplantation are also options. And of course, prevention is always key. For C. difficile prevention, this really rests on avoiding unnecessary antibiotics and having excellent infection control with excellent hand hygiene. Thank you so much, Jake, and here's hoping that we can spare people from getting recurrent C. diff by doing excellent job at washing those hands. Indeed. Indeed. 
All right, we are back with Justin Bailey, our favorite Idahoan family physician and assistant professor and the guru of all things technical and procedural. Good to see you again, Justin. Heidi, thanks for having me back. We are continuing our Ode to the Prostate series, and this time we're talking about prostatitis. Yeah, so prostatitis is a fun topic, and I think this one comes out and surprises us every now and again. So if I can, can I start with a case of a guy that came in a few years ago that took me way longer than it ever should have to get to the right diagnosis? (laughs) Yes, please do, because these are the cases we learn the most from, because as soon as you said that, I thought about at least five other cases I've had that took me way too long to figure out. It was probably because it was my neighbor, right? Like, I don't know if your world is. I, all my neighbors are, are in and out of the practice. Awkward. He's a 45-year-old guy, comes into the office. He's been having kind of chills at night, a little bit of fevers. He's like, yeah, I had a fever. It was up to 101. It's hurting when I pee. I don't feel great. I'm like, easy, UTI. Why does this guy have a UTI, right? But he hasn't had any risk factors, right? He is circumcised. He's not had any new partners. Is currently not sexually active. There's no change in habits. And he complains of this deep pain down in his pelvis. His exam's unremarkable, except for his prostate is, and I would put emphasis around, mildly tender. So you can really get in there and push. And I I feel like that's kind of our classic, like, well, tender prostate's just going to make this a slam dunk. And it's maybe where I I got a little bit off on my track as I pushed on it. And I'm, I'm not a shy guy about doing a thorough exam and just wasn't that tender. It was lightly tender. So I did a UA. I was like, this, I think, is UTI's prostate's not crazy tender. It was positive for E. coli. He'd never had a UTI before. And so I was like, well, maybe, what is this? I think it's still probably this. I treated him for UTI, two weeks of antibiotics. He got all the way better. And then a month later, he's back in my office and he's like, it all came back. It's all worse, right? And that's when I'm like, okay, maybe you should try harder and do your job, right? Like (laughs) be a doctor and get the right diagnosis because a 45-year-old guy that has no risk factors, has probably not got a UTI for the first time ever in his life. Right. Maybe this is prostatitis, right? So prostatitis is what's going on with this guy. Who gets it? And I don't know that I've got a great answer for you why, but this young to middle-aged man is the person who comes in with this. Now, there's certain risk factors that are going to increase our chance of getting this. If you've got a urogenital tract infection from something else, it's going to cause all that tissue to already be infected, already be inflamed, and, and allow something else to get up to the prostate. You've had a stricture, you've had prostate biopsies recently, inflamed tissue again, or you're in an immunosuppressed state. You just can't fight off that one or two bacteria that are always going to be there. Those are going to increase our risk for it uh, as we move forward. Now, this can come from a lot of different things. So as we look at the microbiology of what gets up in and causes this infection of the prostate, I think most of us are going to say it's E. coli, right? E. coli is just going to be the bulk of it. And it is, it's E. coli. It's about 58 to 88% of studies come up with that. I always love when I have a range like that, that 58 to 88%. I'm like, (laughs) are we that bad that we can't (laughs) get this right? And we're just doing the best we can. We don't know. Who really knows? (laughs) Yep. But most of the time it's E. coli. Certainly Proteus can be in those. Enterobacters like Klebsiella's, Serratia's, they make up about three to 10% of it. Pseudomonas can be in there. Staph or Streps can also do it. Or just an STD, gonorrhea, chlamydia. They can also cause the prostatitis to be there. Do we ever see a non-infectious prostatitis? So I think, and it probably deserves its own topic, Mm. is this idea of chronic prostatitis or the non-infected prostatitis. 
So you can get pain that's in that area and it's going to deserve its own kind of balloon around because it is a fascinating world that everybody's kind of tried to figure out what exactly is going on. But for the most part, for an acute prostatitis, infectious is your, your mainstay of causes. Do they all present like your neighbor slash patient slash case that made you think a lot? <laughs> <laughs> slash like, let my mistake not be your mistake, uh, patients. <laughs> <laughs> when they come in and they're acute, right? Like they don't look good. I, I feel like you get that bacteremia and you just don't feel good. They just acutely feel ill. They can have fevers. They don't have to. They can have chills. Don't have to. Malaise, myalgias, dysuria. They can have pelvic pain. They can have clouded urine. They can have pain along the shaft of the penis. They can have pain at the tip of the penis associated with this. That's maybe a referred pain that's coming from that inflamed prostate that's there. They can also have inflammation symptoms associated with it, like difficulty voiding or dribbling. They can have hesitancy or urinary retention due to that prostate being swollen. And then when we go and we do our exam, right, because we should do an exam for this, we should do a digital rectal exam. And so when you feel it, like the classic is firm, edematous, painful prostate. But in my patient, right, his prostate wasn't that tender. And I pushed on it. I wasn't trying to palpate and get that, you know, like a, a prostate secretion. Right. But it was, it was just wasn't that tender. So I think our, our exam can be a little bit all over the map. Classic, it's tender and painful. Like, I always tend to think of the prostate exam and prostatitis as being like a mild version of the chandelier sign in PID. Like, it shouldn't give you that same intense response, but it should be uncomfortable. There's something there, right? There's something yeah. there that you're like, I don't feel good about you going home, or I don't feel right? like, we're yeah. not just going to blow this off. It's enough to make me a little worried. Labs-wise, we can look for a lot of different things. We can see if a white count's elevated see if they've got uh, pyuria, if there's bacteria in there. Do they have a positive blood culture, right? Is their CRP or ESR elevated, right? Like any inflamed tissue is going to cause those to go up. An elevated PSA, right? That will go up. Just, you know, the prostate's this giant sponge that has PSA floating around in it, and the angrier it gets, it just starts leaking that stuff everywhere. How about imaging? Does this ever play a role in prostatitis? It's not a mainstay. And I would say, let me back up a little bit and say for the patient who's had this long-term that hasn't been treated, certainly prosthetic abscesses are a thing. And so someone who's septic, someone who's had this for a long period of time, you may consider a MRI of the prostate. Usually if I'm at that level, I've got a urologist that's working with me in conjunction to try and find out what's the right answer with it. Someone who's acute, an abscess is pretty uncommon to start happening right away. What kind of complications can we see from prostatitis? You know, I think the abscess is really the big thing. You can also get into it, it gets so swollen, you can't urinate, right? Like, so if you have obstruction, if you're like retaining urine, certainly that can go on to cause all sorts of other things, right? The sepsis, the urinary retention, are we causing kidney damage? So I think any reasonable workup on someone who's really sick is probably going to take place in the hospital. But I want to look and do some basics. Someone who's like, I just cannot get a stream started. I'm going to check a creatinine and make sure that everything's working okay on that side of it. Someone who's like, yeah, it just hurts. I feel crummy. I'm probably just going to treat and, and say, I think this is the right diagnosis. My exam is consistent with what my history is. I'm just going to go ahead and treat. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. And speaking of treatment, what did you do for your neighbor? So, uh, well, we were three, three rounds of antibiotics before we finally got his uh, checked off. <laughs> and some of that had to do with my first round was treating the UTI, right? Like I, right. I just... I treated for two weeks and he got better, right? His symptoms got better. Then all of a sudden his symptoms came back because 
And this kind of foot stomps our point of the prostate takes a long time to get antibiotics throughout the tissue. It takes a long time to get good prostate penetration and the antibiotics we want to use, we want to make sure are going to do a good job of getting to the prostate. So I chose a good antibiotic for them. Initially, we'd start on ciprofloxin, but I didn't do it long enough. Six weeks is what I'm going to expect this to take. So ciprofloxin 500 uh, twice a day is a good choice. Trimethoprim's sulfamethoxazole twice a day, double strength is a good one. Levofloxin once a day. And again, I'm going to go six weeks. Now, on occasion, you may say patients like, man, my symptoms are gone. They've been gone for weeks. So if their pain, all their symptoms are resolved at four weeks, you check a CRP, it's gone back to normal. It may be reasonable to stop at four weeks, but for most people, it's going to be six weeks. Now, if I've got a bacteria that I found, we may vary from those. So that's my, I'm not necessarily what I know, or those are my E. coli uh, bugs I'm going to do. If I've got a gram-positive cocci and chains, amoxicillin is going to be my drug of choice to start with. Again, same amount of time. Gram-positive cocci and clusters that's methicillin-sensitive, I'm probably going to go cephalexin 500Q6 or dicloxacin Q6, and that's going to get me better coverage with those. Now, if I've got the patient who is failing on that or just looks, you know, like that patient that just makes you feel nervous, you see him in the office and you're like, you should not be <laughs> at your house, you should be at my house in the hospital. Right? And by my house, I say hospital, not my actual house because <laughs> my kids and, and doing your treatment may not work out as well as we hope. <laughs> Dr. Fart, I'm really sick. Do you think you could help me? Yes, I can help you with my farts. With your farts? How does that work? Um, it would make you still alive. Oh, that makes sense. So if they're throwing up, right, they're just getting worse. They're septic, right? You go to the hospital and we're going to treat them a little different. We're going to do IV medications, right? Like that's going to give us a better consistent systemic doses. We know that it's getting in. We don't have uh, them throwing up and complicating all that. Mm -hmm. So levofloxacin or ciplofloxacin can be good choices as that. And often we'll combine them with genomycin or tobramycin if their creatinine is normal to just really get after this and get the tissue penetration we need and, and kind of double cover. Carbapenems, broad-spectrum penicillin, cephalosporins can all be good, plus genomycin. And, and genomycin is often added if they've had a recent instrumentation, right? They had biopsies done. They had a, a urethral stricture dilated. That can increase our risk of developing this, and it's going to bring different bugs into it, so they may add those in there. For our gram-positive cocci and chains, still ampicillin, 2 grams Q6. For our cocci and clusters, cephalozolin, uh, 1 gram Q8, or nafcillin, 2 grams every 4 to 6 hours are going to be our drugs of choice there. Okay. At which point would you involve urology? And I know this depends where we practice in our, in our local resources, but what's your comfort level? When would you say, hey, I need a urologist to get involved? You know, I, anything outpatient I usually feel pretty comfortable with. I'm a three strikes, I'm out kind of guy. Uh, <laughs> like if I've tried three things and, and I have not made any progress, uh, it's not my turn to bat anymore and I need someone else <laughs> <laughs> to be to to at least be at the plate and cue me or or help me along. Right. For my patient, I told you I went through three different antibiotics. We'd done the the first one, we did a second one that we were on for six weeks and he didn't get better. So actually I went and talked to my pharmacist. I'm like, what am I what else can I be doing here? And I got him involved there. So what are you all just also being in my corner at that point been reasonable? Absolutely. You know, if we've tried multiple things and it's just not getting better, maybe the picture we're seeing is a little different. I would probably have at least a curbside, if not a formal consult with the urologist at that point. Is there any sequelae to prostatitis? And do you ever see a recurrent prostatitis? I'm not talking about that, like, chronic prostatitis, but is it the condition where if you've had it once, you're more likely to have it again? 
So it certainly can come back. Every patient's their own game of this. It's not necessary that you're like, oh, once you have this, it's just going to haunt the rest of your life. I've had patients come back with it once or twice again. As we walk into that, we're going to do all those things. Like someone comes back in, they have all the same symptoms. They've had a, a good, clear time where they've been free of symptoms. Look, I had this two years ago. It's very similar. We run another antibiotic course. It all goes away. We'll see those a couple times. Patients for me who I've are seen coming back, if I've got, they've come back a third time and they've had it again, again, my three strikes, I'm out rule. Right. I'm going to be asking someone else, hey, what am I missing in this? I've looked at this. I've thought about all these other things. I've done these extra tests for the differential. I feel like I'm missing something. And, and for some of those, they've come back and said, it's just prostatitis again. That's just who this patient is. You know, for that chronic prostatitis that may be there or someone who just never got better all the way along. Did I miss an abscess? Is there some source of infection in there that we're just not getting to? I think are the questions that I'm going to be asking myself. Hmm. Okay, that is a, a helpful overview. Now, how is your neighbor? I, I should ask. He's all better. He, he, he hasn't come back in three years, right? Like once I got the right <laughs> diagnosis, we got him through all his antibiotics. He's been great. All of his symptoms are gone. He's, he's just, it's been great. Take home points. What are the take home points, the short snappers that we all need to know about prostatitis? I think first, think about it, right? Like that patient who comes in, it can occur in as young as teenage years. It's uncommon there, but that younger to middle-aged male patient who comes in has new onset symptoms, that pelvic pain or urinary tract symptoms, who doesn't have necessarily a risk factor. We do a bit of a workup to find out, and it's not any of those other things, just have prostatitis, right? Like have that in the forefront of your mind of like, this is a possibility that we can be considering for it. I think for most antibiotics, I keep most antibiotics in my, I'm going to go look up when I need this category. Yes. <laughs> Some people keep all that in front of them. There's really good tables that are out there that are, are quickly accessed to say like, here's where I'm going to start. For the most part, it's going to be either your uh, uh, trimethoprim or your Bactrim or your ciprofloxacin are probably your two first choices. They've got good prostate penetration. If you've got a culture back, right, from a urine culture, something else that's one of those other ones, down some of our gram-positive, your, your penicillin-based ones are going to be your place to start. But if you don't remember, right, it's nothing's going downhill super fast. Just go look it up. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That's perfect. So thank you so much for this great overview of a not that common, but common enough that we need to know it when we see it. Diagnosis. You bet. Perfect. Thanks, Justin. You're welcome. Thanks, Heidi. Have a great day. Pharmacology Round with Brian Hayes. Brian Hayes. And Gita Pensa. <laughs> Get out of here. So today I would like to talk about something that we use all the time, that if you're like me, you take all the time. I want to talk about NSAIDs. I love NSAIDs. They're one of my favorite drugs up with antibiotics. So this is going to be a great one. <laughs> All right. So the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. To start with, I think most of us know that we should be using NSAIDs sparingly in patients who have histories of like peptic ulcer disease, bleeding ulcers. We Most of us know from personal experience that they irritate our stomachs if you take too much of them. What other comorbidities should we be thinking about when we are giving and prescribing NSAIDs? Comorbidities. You mentioned a good one, which patients with PUD, active PUD, you can actually potentially use it in patients with a history of PUD as long as they are, you know, using like a PPI or something along with it. So that's okay. Patients that are also at risk though, that we have to keep in mind are those with cardiovascular disease, including MI, strokes, heart failure, 
angina, hypertension, kind of all the things that you kind of have on your list of cardiac risk factors, those should be taken into account when you're prescribing NSAIDs. And I'll say it at the beginning, and we'll probably come back to this as a key point at the end, but the key to NSAIDs is always prescribing the shortest course needed to be effective with the lowest dose that's going to be effective. So lowest dose for shortest amount of time, which is going to be different for each patient, and that minimizes your risk overall. The other risk factor to maybe keep in mind a little bit is renal insufficiency. Now, you'll hear transplant folks say, like, if I've transplanted a kidney or someone donated one of their kidneys to someone else, those patients should never get NSAIDs. So I'm not going to argue with the transplant surgeons. Right. You know, if you have a functioning kidney, it might be okay, but I'm not doing it. So don't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't give it to those patients. All right. So we're told to use it in caution in patients with coronary disease. What is the actual issue there? The issue is clotting, and it actually can, despite the fact that they're NSAIDs and you think that they would work a little bit similar to aspirin, they actually can lead to an increased risk of thrombosis in those patients. And so patients that have cardiovascular disease, specifically coronary artery disease or other systemic inflammatory disorders, older age, male gender, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, smoking, the whole thing, those patients have a higher risk of having an adverse cardiac event compared to those who don't have those risk factors. Interactions. So along those same lines, is it true that other NSAIDs can inhibit the cardioprotective effects of aspirin? Sort of. (laughs) So all of the non-aspirin, the non-salicylate NSAIDs do inhibit platelet aggregation through the COX-1 activity. But aspirin does it irreversibly. So it does it for the life of the platelet, whereas NSAIDs are reversible, meaning it's just as long as the drug is around. So thinking of like half-lives and things like that. Aspirin's effect can be attenuated by continued use of NSAIDs. So it's probably best to avoid, if possible, or use occasionally on like a short-term basis. Now, that all being said, just in the past two weeks, they are getting rid of the recommendation to have most patients use aspirin as a preventative therapy for MIs. So over the next year or two, we as practitioners may see less patients that are using aspirin for that purpose, and this may become less of an actual issue. All right, time will tell. So still thinking along the lines of med interactions, what about NSAIDs and anticoagulants? We know we shouldn't be using NSAIDs longer term, but what about that one-time dose of Ketorolac for a patient in the urgent care or ED with acute pain who happens to be on Coumadin or Rivaroxaban just once, you know, in the interest of sparing opioids? Is it safe to give them just a very, very short course of NSAIDs or even like a single dose? Yes, it is for most patients. I think one of the implied talking points here is that by doing this, we're hopefully going to avoid other therapies like opioids, which I think that the benefit outweighs the risk for in most of these cases. Now, if you're thinking about like this patient's going to need to be on a month of NSAIDs, I don't know why you would think that anyway, but if you did and they're on warfarin or one of these anticoagulants, I'd be really hesitant to do that because mm-hmm. you don't know how much they're able to get monitored if they're on a drug that even is going to be monitored. So definitely not that, but the one-time dose in urgent care or a three-day course to treat some sort of musculoskeletal pain that's going to let you avoid opioids, yes, that should be fine. Okay. Because that's what I've been doing anyway. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that. Good to know. <laughs> Just, you know, I think that the EMR is going to be very upset with you. Certainly, you shouldn't be sending anyone home with like a long prescription for NSAIDs if they're on an anticoagulant. But sometimes when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, 
and you don't want to or shouldn't be using an opioid in a given situation and this person has pain, like I think a one-time dose is not going to make them bleed out. It's a one-time thing. And so just rationalizing things like that. The other way to rationalize this in a way is that these are all, for the most part, outside of Ketorolac, over-the-counter products. And so as long as we're educating our patients on anticoagulants about the safe use of them, then, you know, they can go to any pharmacy and buy it anywhere. That doesn't even have to be a pharmacy. They can buy it anywhere, even on Amazon. So you can get like the thousand count bottle from from Costco. (laughs) So, you know, by you just not prescribing, it doesn't mean that the patient can't just go and get it anyway. No. So it's important to have that talk with them probably. But when you're stuck like that, perhaps a one-time dose isn't the worst thing in the world. Yep. So what other NSAID interactions should we be aware of? There's a lot of them with NSAIDs. I'm going to try and keep it to ones that we may actually see in the urgent care and kind of like the urgent care sections of EDs. So all but aspirin are highly protein bound. So if there are other drugs patients may be on like phenytoin or warfarin that are also protein bound, when you give them NSAIDs, the NSAIDs can displace the phenytoin or warfarin from the protein, making it free basically raising the active activity of the drug because it's not bound to the protein anymore. So am I going to avoid them? No. But should I just be wary of that? Yes. They all kind of inhibit some of the cytochrome enzymes. So you've got to be a little bit wary of that. Now, the good news is I'll tell you is a lot of the drug databases that you have available to you in urgent care, you can type in whatever NSAID you're thinking about with like their list of medications, and it will tell you what the most important interactions are. So You could use anything like Micromedics or Lexicomp or Hippocrates, any of the ones that are out there you can use and they have this functionality. So that's nice. Methotrexate is something that we sometimes see in patients. NSAIDs can decrease renal clearance of that. And then I try to avoid it in patients on ACE inhibitors also, just because they can kind of mess with the visodilator, hyperkalemia, prostaglandin Mm -hmm. effect, those things together. As we know, NSAIDs can increase the risk of peptic ulcer disease, particularly in patients that have had it already. And that's even higher in patients on steroids. So if there's a patient already on steroids, it might be something I'd be like, uh, let me do a couple days, but no longer than that. Yeah, we run into trouble, I think, with that sometimes with pain or really trying to tamp down inflammation. And we're like, here's your steroids, here's your NSAIDs. And then we don't think about their stomachs. Yep, that's exactly right. And then the last one, which is a little bit related, is that so many patients are on SSRIs. When you add an NSAID, particularly like a prolonged course. So this is not like the one-time dose type thing. They can increase the risk of GI toxicity also with the SSRI. So just, again, if they're on those, then don't prescribe like a month's worth of NSAIDs. I did not know that one, the SSRIs. All right, I taught you something. Yay. You did. And so maybe you could do it with a PPI short term or something like that. All right, so got to think about aspirin, phenytoin, warfarin, methotrexate, ACE inhibitors, and glucocorticoids and SSRIs. Yep. Okay. Choice of NSAIDs. So let's talk next about this very wide range of NSAIDs available to us. Like I have a handful of NSAIDs that I just use in a given week, right? So this is like my list. Most people, if they get an NSAID, they're going to get ibuprofen, maybe naproxen because some people have a preference for that. Aspirin is its own thing. I only use that for cardiac stuff. But then for some reason, I never give it for pain. And I wonder why that is sometimes. Ketorolac, I give for anything that warrants a parenteral NSAID. And for some reason, if it's gout, I go with indomethacin. But that's just cultural. I don't have a really good reason in my head why indomethacin is better in gout than ibuprofen. And I don't even know if it's true, but that's just what I was taught to do. <laughs> so for all these NSAIDs, right, diclofenac, loxicam, Mephenamic acid, 
COX-2 inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Do we have any data to say that other than aspirin, one NSAID is better than another in a given clinical situation? Is anyone NSAID stronger, like quote unquote, stronger than another? Like, does it make sense that we keep choosing one over another in one given clinical situation? Or is that literally just historical and cultural? Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there. Great questions. <laughs> That's my rant. <laughs> but these are super common questions. So I'm, I'm glad we're going to talk about this a little bit. They are different. There's it, Within NSAIDs, there are like subclasses. So for example, ibuprofen and naproxen are in the subcategory together. And then you have your COX-2s and some, some other ones. So that's nice because rarely there are patients that have allergies to an NSAID, like, you know, something that might resemble a real allergy. Then you might be okay to like switch up the class and give them a different one or, or at least trial it. So that's a nice advantage. Is there one that's clearly better than the others? No, not in the ED or urgent care literature that I've seen. Most of the studies that look at NSAIDs are comparing them to something else, like so that it's comparing it to an opioid or some other class of pain medicine. You don't see a whole lot of hey, here's ibuprofen versus naproxen, <laughs> which would be great. So the way that I like to think about it is which one's going to be the right one for my patient now? And I agree with your list. Those are the top three that I use and I see all the time too, ibuprofen, naproxen, ketorolac. So when I'm thinking about what to do, naproxen is a really nice choice for a lot of patients. It seems, based on the data out there, that it's probably the safest in terms of the cardiac effects. It's also twice a day dosing rather than Q six hours for ibuprofen. So that's nice. Ketorolac, we generally, like you said, use that if we need an IM or IV dose while they're with us in the urgent care. So that's that's kind of like I reserve that for those patients. And to answer your question about which one is technically the strongest, ketorolac would fit that category. But in terms of ibuprofen versus naproxen, I personally, like me, Brian Hayes, I use ibuprofen as my go-to when I have my headaches that I get somewhat regularly. I don't know why. It's just something that's worked for me. Naproxen could be just as good. I just, I just haven't given it a shot because I usually only need one or two doses and I'm done. Whereas I don't need like, do I need to take this again in 12 hours? But I think if you're going to look at all of them, naproxen and ibuprofen are probably the best two to go with. So again, things to think about just to review dosing intervals, side effects, but they all kind of share similar side effects. All NSAIDs inhibit the COX enzyme. That's how they actually work, which leads to the formation of prostaglandins. That's how we help with the inflammation stuff. But again, if you have someone that's tried one class, then you might be okay trying a different class if the first one didn't work very well. So that's kind of a nice thing to do. And if you only give ibuprofen for gout, then people are going to look at you funny and say, why didn't you prescribe indomethacin? But I bet they don't have a good reason. That is a true story. <laughs> yes. Dosing. I think most of us have gotten the memo that we should be scaling back on our NSAID dosing, that there are ceiling doses in terms of therapeutics, but not necessarily in terms of side effects. So. We used to give 60 milligrams of Ketorolac very liberally, and now we are trying to bring it down to 10. Are we finding that most NSAIDs have a ceiling dose and it's lower than we used to think? Yeah, this is a really interesting topic. I agree. When I first started in practicing, it was like 60 of IM Ketorolac or 30 IV. That was like the standard, do <laughs> the standard mm -hmm. dose. Yeah. And we, we actually have changed practice at my hospital too. We use 15 as our default. And I will tell you, we actually looked at the data you can count on one handful of times a patient actually needed a second dose to like get up to what the original was we used. So patients do not need more than 15 in most circumstances. So you mentioned the ceiling effect. So there was a couple of really well done randomized control trials in the ED patient population. So this applies to urgent care also because a lot of the same pain complaints were crossover. 
And they looked at different doses of ketorolac in one study, and they looked at different doses of ibuprofen versus each other in a different study. And both of them found that the lower doses tend to work for most patients. Now, does that mean that some patients may not need more? No, that th- some patients may. And that even, like I said, applies to me. Like sometimes I'll start with 400 of ibuprofen. My headache doesn't go away. I take a second 400. It does go away. So I know even just for me personally that that's not always the case. And the ceiling effect that has been described for the pain does not necessarily apply to inflammation. So if you're giving your NSAID for a condition that some of the pain is related to the inflammation, mm then you may consider going on the higher end of the dosing scale to help with that inflammation, which then subsequently will help with the pain. So my doses generally are 400 to 600 for pain for ibuprofen, 15 for ketorolac, that's IV or IM, it doesn't matter, they should be the same. And then for naproxen, some people still use 500, but you can probably get away with 250 as your starting dose for naproxen, which is the -the over-the-counter dose for the most part. Okay, awesome. COX-2 inhibitors. I never prescribe these. I think maybe the last time I did, it was like when Vioxx was on the market and brand new and everybody was like, oh, this is going to save everybody. No one's ever going to have an ulcer ever again. I never prescribe these now. I just don't think about them much. Like, should I be thinking about them? Not necessarily. I think I share similar experience to you. So when I first started practicing, that was like at the height of when these were, there was Vioxx, there was the Celecoxib, and there was a third one too that I'm blanking on right now. But then the adverse cardiac events started happening and they pulled Vioxx from the market. Celecoxib is really the only one that's available now. The other thing that was the problem with them at first is they were so expensive and so patients couldn't even afford them even if like they, their insurance was kind of paying some of the price. And so we kind of like, they were a big seller like when they first came on the market. But then once they pulled one of them and the prices were still high, like they just started falling by the wayside more and more. Do they have some advantages with GI stuff? Yeah, they probably do. But again, since we're kind of heading in the strategy now of the lowest dose for the shortest possible duration, then I'm not sure that there's a big opportunity for COX-2 inhibitors as much anymore because, you know, the prescriptions I used to see were, you know, 30 days at a time of I'm on my my celecoxib. Every month I get my 30 days worth of celecoxib and we're just not doing that as much Mm -hmm. anymore for most conditions, Mm -hmm. particularly in the acute setting like the ED or urgent care. So I don't think that they have much of a role for us unless patients have an allergy, like a legitimate allergy to one of the other NSAIDs, or they've tried a couple of the other NSAIDs, then they haven't worked for that patient. Totally think about, you know, the COX-2s, but I I don't think that they should be at the forefront. Okay. Combination OTC agents. So one more question about ibuprofen. So there are these new dual dose over-the-counter brands that have ibuprofen and acetaminophen in them. Is there any evidence that those two agents act synergistically? Like we give them in the same 24 hours often, but is there evidence that those two act synergistically or is that all baloney and just for convenience and uh, accidental overdose? <laughs> yeah, I, my, the toxicology side of me is definitely leaning towards the last part of your, your, your question there about accidental overdoses. And the reason is, you go to any pharmacy or grocery store or anywhere where they have like a big selection of analgesics and just try and count how many different products have either Tylenol, like acetaminophen, or ibuprofen in it. And some of them don't even say Tylenol as part of the brand name or Motrin or, or whatever. And so it's so confusing. 
Yeah, patients do not understand that. No, they don't. Or they don't understand that I'm also taking my hydrocodone that has acetaminophen in it. I, I had no idea, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there is a risk of these combination products being misused and causing accidental overdoses. That being said, for certain conditions, you may consider using both of these together, meaning both acetaminophen and ibuprofen, because they attack pain differently. And then obviously ibuprofen has the additional anti-inflammatory effect. So I'm okay with using them together. I would just use them as separate products. I'm not actually sure the cost of these these new dual ones either. I don't know if it's that much more. Mm. But you can just buy them both generically. And I know we used to tell people to like separate them out. So take your acetaminophen every six hours and then three hours after that, then start your cycle of ibuprofen. So every basically every three hours you're taking something. That's ridiculous. You don't need to do that. <laughs> you can take them both at the exact same time. So for that, this, you know, putting them together in one tablet is an advantage. But I think just for safety reasons, we should probably keep them separate because most patients won't actually need both of them. They can start with one and then if they need to, they can add the second one on board. And, you know, a lot of patients are kind of aware that there are 800 milligram ibuprofen prescriptions. So they're kind of used to popping extra ibuprofens. And my two cents is that I feel like this is sort of a dangerous situation. But okay, let's wrap this up, Ryan. I have one last question for you because I know how much you love NSAIDs. Are you ready? If you were an NSAID, which one would you be? Oh, gosh, that's like the medical school, pharmacy school interview question. If I were, so my favorite is ibuprofen because as I mentioned earlier, that's the one that I just love and it works for me. That being said, I would be naproxen because it's the safest and I'm a conservative kind of life liver. (laughs) I I don't take a lot of risks like rock climbing or jumping out of planes. So I would be naproxen and it's because it has a nice long interval in between doses. All right. A lot of relaxing time in between. (laughs) (laughs) I would probably just be ibuprofen because everybody would love me. Oh, fair point. All right, Brian, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. I'm here with our in-house eating disorder and sports med doc, Dr. Dusty Narducci. And today we are talking about, well, to say talking is probably a bit unfair. It's actually, we will be ranting about a topic that is near and dear to our hearts in family medicine. And that is how to help our patients develop a healthy relationship with food and their bodies. It's so good to have you here, Dusty. Heidi, I have been impatiently waiting to podcast about this topic. What we will be focusing on here is helping our patients achieve optimal health without necessarily addressing the shape and size of their bodies. Now, this goes contrary to how so many of us have been trained and how we practice and also flies in the face of so many societal and cultural issues around obesity. Cultural beliefs about beauty, health, and worth like really can inhibit us from accepting ourselves, and it may even prevent self-compassion. You're right about that, Dusty. Losing weight can be very, very difficult for many patients. And also, frankly, it can be demoralizing and can create feelings of shame when they are unable to do so. So I often wonder, how can we help our patients be the healthiest they can be at the size that their body is? Accomplish that first, then if it's still clinically indicated, then focus on changing the shape and the weight of their body. And so much of obesity and what we weigh is determined by factors that are outside of our control. Like we exist in an obesogenic society. So 
asking people to assume sole responsibility or assuming they have sole responsibility for how they look ignores broader factors and forces that are at play that influence us in ways that we're probably not even aware of. Yes, you're so spot on. And I know one of those forces is a so-called diet culture. And I'm sure some of us have, you know, heard that term diet culture before. It's like a set of attitudes that worship this specific body type, and it equates with an individual's health and worth. You know, our culture is governed by this like narrow view of beauty and health. I mean, there's so many cognitive distortions surrounding food and health. You know, we tend to label food as good or bad, like we just talked about, and then experience guilty feelings when we eat these bad foods. But then we're put on a pedestal when we eat good foods or we exercise too much. And it just like reinforces this behavior. I've lost 16 kilos on the new, more balanced Atkins plan. If I can do it, so can you. Join me to lose the weight and feel great. You know, in actuality, like you just said, there's like no right body shape, size. There's no correct way to eat or best method to exercise. You know, we have a hardwired like weight regulation system that's really like not in our control really at all. I mean, there's this part that we can, but body weight commonly fluctuates between, you know, a given set point of like 10 to 20 pounds. That's a pretty large range. Let's explore this in a little bit more detail, Dusty. Can you expand on why diet culture is so harmful? You know, it teaches us that our success, happiness, and worth, it's based on what we look like. Plain and simple, there is no research supporting that weight loss programs or products improve happiness or achieve an initial or sustained weight loss over a two- to five-year period. You know, more than 90% of people regain the weight they lost with most regaining more than they lost. I mean, the message of diet culture is that you're not enough. This is your problem, and it's your fault. Most people blame themselves. So they find this new diet or this new program when they fail to lose the weight. And the cycle just starts over and over and over again. This is where I struggle as a physician. I feel like we've been inculcated that the right answer to our patients with obesity's health problems is to tell them to lose weight because losing weight will fix any number of their health-related concerns. But Why would I encourage anybody to only do something that there is a 90% chance that they're going to fail at it, that they're not going to be able to lose the weight or sustain that weight loss? Why would I be that mean and tell somebody, yeah, this is going to fix your problems, but there's actually a less than 10% chance that you're going to actually be able to do it? Why would I do that? Why would I not encourage them instead to you know, let's work on, you know, how can we help your body be as healthy as it can be at the size it is? There's so many options. There's exercise, there's mental health care, there's medications to help treat conditions. Why do we focus on insisting our patients lose weight? Like you said, we need to start to teach them about self-acceptance and compassion and focusing on things that are more important, like personal wellness. For sure, for sure. Now, tying this into your area of clinical expertise, Do you know if there is a link between diet culture and eating disorders, Dusty? Yes. Eating disorders are multifaceted. You know, it's an illness. It's very complex. It's not just what the media says. But diet culture almost normalizes disordered eating behaviors. And it's making diagnosis and management that much harder. And not to mention, it's a pathway for developing a clinical eating disorder. That is what pushes them down that road. It's well, let me eat a little bit cleaner. And then if you have the genetic predisposition, that environment, you know, you use it as a coping skill, you're super hard on yourself, that perfectionistic personality, 
you know, you just created the perfect storm. Hmm. Now, what can we do to stop the impact of diet culture on our, our patients? Embracing anti-diet culture? <laughs> um, I think that's the best. You know, there's a fantastic book called Anti-Diet Culture, which will be in the show notes. You know, when I say anti-diet culture, I'm not talking about anti-nutrition and anti-health. It's communicating to ourselves, our patients, and the community that we should strive for healthy body and mind, not aim to modify our appearance. In the past few years, we've really started to see the rise of movements that oppose diet culture, that challenge the belief that people who are obese or overweight cannot be healthy. And I'd say the most prominent one is the Healthy at Every Size movement. Could you tell us a little bit about this? It's a movement that really supports health while being compassionate, respectful to ourselves and others, regardless of body size. It is based on principles, and these principles really emphasize like rejecting an ideal-specific body type. It promotes health enhancement, respectful care, individualized eating, and physical movement for well-being rather than weight control. I've also seen in the media and in social media people talking about intuitive eating, and this seems to be a complementary concept to healthy at every size. What does this involve? Yeah, so intuitive eating, it was coined in 1995 by registered dietitians Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, and it's based on 10 principles. I mean, the general idea of an intuitive eating is to promote the use of internal physical cues to decide what, when, and how much to eat. You know, this philosophy really totally rejects that diet culture. It honors the hunger. It encourages peace with food, challenges the rules created around food, and it advocates for mindfulness and just all while promoting that body acceptance. You know, we often think of diet and exercise together. And is there a similar approach to exercise? Is there intuitive exercise? Yeah. What if exercise was mindful movement or physical movement to like understand your body? shifting focus to how your body feels and moves rather than how many calories you're burning. You know, not checking and recording every single step, every activity, and like using that validation. But instead, use the time to relax your brain. You know, let your body do what it's capable of doing. Okay, Dusty, it's all well and good for us to discuss ideas because that's important to discuss trends. That's important. But we definitely let evidence guide our practice. What research do we have on these topics? Research has found that those who give themselves full permission to eat the foods they enjoy are more likely to rely on internal rather than those external cues of hunger and fullness. They're going to be less likely to eat past fullness, including binge eating behaviors. You know, they're going to experience less guilt with eating. They're going to have more positive self-esteem and a better body image. Research has found that intuitive eaters have a higher HDL cholesterol and a lower triglyceride in addition to lower body mass index compared to your non-intuitive eaters and also a lower cardiovascular risk. Now, Dusty, the Healthy at Every Size movement, the moving more towards encouraging health in somebody's pre-existing body shape, body size, certainly has its critics. In fact, I was scrolling through Reddit the other day and found this thread of people just completely blasting fat acceptance and, and the notion that a larger body could be a healthy body. What do you say to these critics? I'm glad you asked that, Heidi. I mean, it's essential to consider the controversies and concerns of all theories. I mean, this is how we cultivate medicine, right? As passionate as I am about this, there are noteworthy flaws in our current Hayes research. You know, research is limited. Most are very small sampled size. And most studies only included normal weight, 
overweight and class one obesity, not morbid obesity if you're using that BMI scale. So concerns that Hayes or similar philosophies will promote overeating with increasing body weight being ignored, of course, has led to apprehension. You know, associating obesity and chronic disease may prevent people from being healthy at every size, particularly in the case of extreme obesity. Now, in May 2017, scientists in the European Congress on Obesity expressed skepticism about the possibility of being fat but fit. You know, a 20-year observational study of around 3.5 million participants showed that fat but fit people still had higher risk of a number of diseases and adverse effects than the general population. With that being said, you know, there's so many variables to that. European Journal of Preventative Cardiology used data from approximately, I want to say like 500,000 working adults in Spain and found that an active lifestyle can't cancel out the negative effects of cardiovascular health caused by obesity. So those are all things to consider. And yes, it's always important to look at both sides. Every time I think about this topic, Dusty, uh, words from Yoni Friedhoff, a, a Canadian obesity guru, come to mind. And he said that perhaps we need to focus on helping people not gain more weight rather than helping them to lose weight. And this is where I think that the Hayes movement would be very useful, helping people to become comfortable with who they are, with the bodies they inhabit, and to help them feel like they don't need to do a diet and then gain that weight back and gain even more weight. Like it feels to me like even just helping people accept where they're at will prevent future weight gain. I absolutely love that. I think we need to create our own movement, Heidi. Seriously, that's such a cool message to teaching clinicians how to help their patients. And I think the first step towards that is to have all of us clinicians examine our own attitudes and thoughts about obesity and about people who have larger bodies, because what we think influences how we act. We need to really understand our own weight bias, and it starts there. This is kind of shocking for a lot of people when they start to explore this, but when we're inundated with this like diet culture and these stereotypes, it's absolutely reasonable to develop prejudice and consequently discriminatory behaviors. I mean, tools such as the Harvard Implicit Bias, these tests can be so helpful to kind of tap into your own beliefs because if you feel that way, that is what you're portraying to your patients, whether you want to or not. Yeah, so true, so true. Now, Dusty, I have patients, we all have patients, for whom the size and shapes of their body causes them tremendous psychological distress. Now, in addition to helping them from a medical perspective to obtain the best health possible for them, is there another tool we can be using to help with the psychological and emotional aspect? Yeah, there's um, enhanced cognitive behavioral therapy, also CBTE, you know, that specifically focuses on body image. It helps to enhance the importance of other domains of self-evaluation, and it reduces the importance attached to like shape and weight. Learning to be mindful is key, and it really can help with almost any distressing emotional response. But there's lots of roots to this, you know. Where is this need for perfection coming from? I mean, that really has to be explored. What other tips and tricks can you offer? You know, we really can shift the focus on health, not weight or appearance. You know, instead of obesity prevention, use the term health promotion and saying larger, smaller bodied instead of overweight and obese to avoid that weight-biased stigma. You know, in my clinic, I make sure to have chairs that fit all body sizes. I don't weigh my patients unless it's for an eating disorder 
patient that the BMI is essential for insurance purposes. And if I do, it's a blind wait. In health promotion, it should focus on all aspects, including physical, emotional, social, occupational, intellectual, spiritual, and ecological. You know, as physicians, we need to promote self-esteem, body satisfaction, body size diversity. Dusty, I have really enjoyed sitting down with you and covering what's actually ended up being, I think, a lot more topics than we originally thought it would be. We've talked about diet culture, the healthy at every size movement, intuitive eating. We've covered clinicians' implicit bias towards obesity. And although it's a lot of topics, they all come together under the umbrella of encouraging us, encouraging our listeners here to reframe our approach to caring for our patients who inhabit larger bodies. We can diverge from our training and buck sociocultural norms and offer a kinder, more whole person approach to care. Yeah, open your mind as a clinician, right? That's why medicine's so amazing, is that gray area. Listen to your patients. You know, don't just say things because we're told to say it or we have to meet measures. Just try something different, you know? Hey, take a chance, try this approach and see if it works because I've had such incredible success and the success is just watching my patients live a healthier and happier life. And isn't that what we want for them? Thank you so much, Dusty. It's always a, always a treat chatting with you. Thank you, Heidi. I'm thrilled to have Penny Wilson back with us for our ongoing series on contraception. And today's topic is contraception during perimenopause. How does fertility change as women get older? Fertility does naturally decline in the 40s and onwards, with the average age of menopause being around age 51. Pregnancy is still possible into the 50s, and those later in life pregnancies are particularly high risk. So contraception is still an important consideration. It's recommended to be using contraception until 12 months after the last period if they're over the age of 50, or 24 months after the last period if they're under the age of 50. And it's also generally accepted that contraception can be ceased at age 55. Obviously, it can be hard to recognize menopause in patients who are taking hormonal contraception if that contraception changes their bleeding pattern. Yeah, absolutely. So in people taking a progestogen-only method, we can use serial FSH measurements, and if they're elevated six weeks apart, then that can provide the diagnosis of menopause, after which we can use the one-year rule for ongoing contraception. But in people taking a combined hormonal method with estrogen, the FSH measurement is not reliable. Now, it's generally recommended for those people to change to a safer method of contraception at age 50 anyway, because of the increased risk of estrogen at that time. And then at that time, after one year, you could go ahead and check their serial FSH and see where they're at at that stage. Alternately, it's very reasonable to continue a contraceptive method until the age of 55 and then stop. What options should we be recommending to our perimenopausal patients? So all the usual options are available, but it's particularly important to consider the patient's age and risk factors to maximise medication safety. Combined hormonal contraceptives have an influence on venous thromboembolism risk, cardiovascular and cerebrovascular risk, so that's why they are generally recommended to be switched to something safer at age 50. So by safer, we mean something like a progestogen-only option or a non-hormonal option. Combined hormonal contraceptives should be avoided in younger women also who have additional risk factors 
such as uncontrolled hypertension, BMI over 35, previous BTE, heart attacks, stroke, etc., and also smokers over the age of 35. On the other hand, COCP is a good hormone replacement for bone protection and relief of menopausal symptoms in patients who don't have contraindications, and also those with premature ovarian insufficiency or menopause symptoms before the age of 50, as the doses are a little bit more physiological than typical menopausal hormone therapy. Are there methods which are particularly suited to the perimenopausal group compared to younger women? Yeah, so these patients can do really well on methods that are a bit less reliable. So things like the progesterone-only pill or barrier methods. And this is due to a lower natural fertility, so the risk of contraceptive failure is lower. Again, for a really good option, we turn again to the LARCs, which have multiple benefits. So they're effective contraception with no significant worsening of cardiovascular risk. They can help to control bleeding in the perimenopausal transition, which can be really problematic for some people with like awful heavy, painful periods in that sort of 40s time period. And they also provide long-lasting contraception. So the subdermal implant can be used in the typical way, so change every three years. However, the levonorgestrel IUD can be used for contraception for up to 10 years if it's inserted after the age of 45. So that's really useful. The copper IUD can also be used until the time of menopause if it's inserted after the age of 40. So we've got a bit of a longer time frame in, in those slightly older age group. The other thing that's really interesting is that the levonorgestrel IUD can be used as endometrial protection in conjunction with estrogen menopausal hormone therapy, but none of the other contraceptive methods can be used this way. So that's another advantage. Recap. Okay, Penny, you've done a wonderful job laying all of this out for us, and I'm going to quickly summarize it. So in perimenopausal women, all contraceptive options are on the table, but the risk factors come more into play in this age group than they might in younger women. In particular, we need to think about switching patients from combined estrogen progesterone therapy to other options when they hit 50 in order to minimize their VTE, cardio, and cerebrovascular risks. And don't forget the LARCs, the long-acting reversible contraceptives. They are often the best option here. I think that's it, Penny. Did I hit the highlights? I think so. All right. Thanks so much for being here, Penny. And we will catch you next time we have a contraceptive question. So several years ago, when I was still a resident, I was working in a small rural emergency room. It wasn't remote, but it was pretty rural. We had labs and x-rays and even an ultrasound, but there was no CT scan and there were no specialists on site. You know who it is, Cardi V. We're talking rural medicine, a rural, as in out there, uh, rural. Rural medicine talks. The nearest scan and specialists were a few hours away on a pretty sketchy road. So I was working a string of evening shifts and on my first shift of that stretch, I grabbed a chart. It's a nine-year-old female patient presenting with intermittent fevers for three days. She had no past medical history of any significance. She had no allergies. She was fully vaccinated. According to her parents, she'd had a normal childhood development, but they'd only recently moved to the province and had never been seen at that hospital before or within that healthcare network, so we had no files that we could really check. So they were coming in because for the previous three days, the patient had been having fevers in the evening. She would feel fine in the morning, go to school all day, but in the evening would get tired and have fever and chills. Her documented fevers range between 38.5 Celsius to 39 Celsius at home. 101.3 to 102.2 Fahrenheit. 
Parents would give her acetaminophen, she'd go to bed, and then she'd wake up feeling fine. And then the pattern repeated itself each day. She had no reported URTI symptoms, no nausea, no vomiting, no diarrhea, and she had no urinary symptoms. Her parents did say that she had a bit less of an appetite in the evenings when she was febrile, but otherwise during the day she was eating well and sleeping well. They brought her in that night because it had been the third day and it just seemed odd to them, so they wanted her to be checked out. When I saw her, she was a well-looking child who was afebrile. This was about two hours post acetaminophen at triage where her temp had been 38.9 oral, and the rest of her vitals were all within normal limits. She was well hydrated, she was interacting normally, and she had a normal head and neck, respiratory, cardiac, and abdominal exam. I had a quick look at her skin. I will admit that I did not fully undress her at this point, and I didn't see anything of concern, and neurologically she was moving about the room normally, acting totally fine. So after reviewing the case with my staff, we determined that this was technically fever of unknown origin, but it was probably from an underlying viral issue in an otherwise healthy and well-appearing child. We gave them instructions to monitor for symptoms, keep an eye on her intake and output, and to keep on top of hydration, and of course told her to come back if there are any concerns. And then we moved on to the rest of the patients. So what do you think? Is that reasonable? Fever of unknown origin in a nine-year-old girl. So good history, good physical exam, nothing to suggest anything bad. I think that's completely reasonable. A little wait and see. Most of the time, this isn't going to be anything. This is going to be a viral syndrome, unclear etiology. It's going to get better. But the key thing is tell the people to come back if it deviates from the normal. It continues. It gets worse. Anything new happens. And uh, guess what happens? The next evening, I was back in the emergency room, and so was she. I saw her name pop up on the triage list and asked my staff if I should see her. He said that it would be great for continuity of care, so in I went. She was there with her parents again and seemed generally the same as the day before. She'd slept fine after being discharged from ER the night before, and she'd been afebrile upon waking. She'd actually stayed home from school that day because she'd been pretty tired from the emergency room visit, but she had good energy during the day and she'd eaten well. However, in the late afternoon, she grew more tired again and was hot to touch, and when her mum checked her temperature, it was 39 degrees oral. So they'd given her acetaminophen and brought her in. Again, on exam, she was well hydrated, she was alert, she was moving about normally. There was nothing new on physical exam, except she was a wee bit tachycardic with a heart rate of 110, and she had a temperature of 38.2. This time it was only about an hour since her triage acetaminophen dose when I saw her. On paper, I was still thinking that this was likely a benign viral infection, but of course, anytime a patient comes back with the same problem, I think we all start to question ourselves a bit. As we should, right? We ask patients to come back if they don't improve or if things get worse because sometimes disease processes take time to present. And of course, because also, we sometimes we make mistakes. So I reviewed the case with my staff and we debated about whether or not we should do investigations for this young patient. So to complicate the issue, she was very scared of needles and became somewhat hysterical at the thought of her blood being taken. And given how well she looked, we actually opted not to do blood tests at this time. We did get a urinalysis because we thought that that was probably the likeliest source of an occult infection, but her dip and urinalysis came back clean. I also did have her fully undressed this time to make sure that there were no rashes or lesions that we were missing, and we were reassured to see that her skin was clear and her neuroexam was totally normal. So we chatted with her parents, reassured them again, and gave them the same discharge instructions. I could see they were a bit frustrated, and mostly I think because they were concerned that we weren't giving them any concrete answers and they didn't have a definitive diagnosis for what was going on with their daughter. And so after they left, the staff and I rediscussed this case to see if there were any things that we should have done differently. We tried to think about what tests we could do in our rural shop and if that would have changed management. 
She had no respiratory symptoms, she had no TB contacts, and she'd not traveled anywhere outside of the region. She had no GI symptoms at all, except a bit of loss of appetite when febrile, which really is pretty normal. She hadn't had any recent surgical procedures, she'd had no joint pains or swelling that could suggest a rheumatologic cause, and she had no gynae symptoms, and luckily, at the age of nine, she was not pregnant. Looking for a white count didn't seem particularly useful, as she looks so well and we can't just treat a white count. Now, of course, if it was alarmingly elevated or alarmingly low, we would have pursued him further investigations, but she just looked so well, it was really hard to think that this was going to be what clinched our diagnosis. So we felt good generally about the decision and the plan, and we went on with our shift. And it all seems reasonable. I think if you had 10 kids like this, nine of them, nothing's going to happen. It's just going to be fever for a few days, and then it goes away. But of course, the differential diagnosis of fever without a source is enormous, rheumatologic, infectious, carcinogenic, and on it goes. So if she keeps coming back, then the workup is going to get bigger than Ben-Hur. Well, I say we felt good about it, because of course her case was certainly in the back of my mind as I kept on working that evening. And the following evening, when I showed up to work, I went straight to the monitor to look for her name, hoping against hope that it wouldn't be there. But there it was. She was back, and she was febrile. Again. Her temp was 38.9, one hour post-acetaminophen. She was tacky at 115. The rest of her vitals were stable. I was very nervous to go and see this patient for a third time now, because I imagined that worried parents wouldn't want a doctor in training to be the only one seeing their child. I mean, my staff had checked the patient out the previous two nights, but this time I actually asked the staff to lead the discussion and asked if I could just sort of sit in and watch as I was nervous I was missing something. My staff was great, they agreed, and in we went. Maddeningly, the patient's story was almost exactly the same as on the previous presentations. Her fever had returned a little bit earlier in the evening than usual, and she seemed a bit more tired this evening, and she'd eaten maybe a bit less on the previous days. But again, her parents hadn't really worried too much about this because she's had several evenings in a row now of spending time in emergency rooms. One thing that did come up, though, and only when we asked about it specifically, was that when she was napping, she apparently had an episode of urinary incontinence. Her parents said that this used to happen when she was younger and febrile. She seemed to sleep so soundly that she didn't wake up with the need to void, and they hadn't even really thought that much about it. It was really only when we asked the specific question that they volunteered this information. There were no other focal symptoms of any sort apart from a mild headache that developed while in the emergency room waiting room, and on physical exam, the staff found nothing focal. She was definitely a bit more tired than the previous two evenings, but nothing remarkable on exam. And I mean, the staff did a really in-depth neuro exam and found nothing. But we all agreed that even though this exam was reassuring, it was now time for some investigations. So we ordered a CBC, electrolytes, glucose, creatinine, liver enzymes, a CRP, repeat urinalysis and culture, blood cultures, and a chest x-ray. The poor girl was not happy and it took a dose of midazolam to calm her down enough to do the labs. But in the end, she was a trooper and we got what we needed. So do you think uh, that what I would call lab trolling is appropriate at this point. I'm probably going to get in trouble and say, I think it is. I think a third presentation, fever without a source, looks good, but this is a real fever. This isn't going away. It's probably still just a viral syndrome. But I think a little bit of trolling is not inappropriate in this case. The UA was negative, the chest x-ray was normal, the creatinine electrolytes and glucose were normal, the liver enzymes were normal, and the blood and urine cultures were sent off and were cooking. The CRP machine was, of course, broken, so that was annoying, but the CBC did show a white blood cell count of 14 with the very slightest of left shifts. 
no unusual looking cells on the differential, and she was not anemic. Her platelets were slightly elevated, as I would expect with a febrile illness, but there was nothing here upon which we could hang our increasingly frustrated hats. We considered at that point to send her a few hours away for further investigations, but we were trying to think what investigations would we even ask for in this patient? This was right around the time when the push to irradiate children less was hitting the news, and we were trying to be very cognizant of this concern. What bit of her would we scan? Her whole body? It seemed like a lot of radiation for someone who looked so well. And adding on to that, the transfer to a bigger center, it was down a dangerous stretch of road that wasn't great for driving on at night. Animals were often on that road, and it was pretty sketchy driving at the best of times. So we decided against that for tonight. Her parents were relieved, of course, that we hadn't found anything of concern, and they seemed to like our suggested planning of sending them home for the night and having them come back during the day shift so we could call pediatrics at the referral center a few hours away to get any advice. And so off they went. I had now seen them each night for three nights in a row and was frankly kind of relieved that they would be seeing a different team during the day shift the following day. So when I showed up at the emergency room the next night, I was fully planning on looking up the patient's chart and finding what had happened when they come during the day. But then a big trauma case came in and we got all wrapped up and that I just never got the chance to follow up. The next evening, evening five, was my final evening shift in that stretch. And when I got to the emergency room, the place was fairly quiet. I saw a few patients and a few hours into my shift, I was doing some charting when I looked up as the triage nurse was wheeling a young female into an exam room. Right away, I knew that this was my patient from before. So I looked at the monitor, saw the name and clicked on the record to see today's triage information. She was again presenting with fever and another episode of incontinence and she was also considerably weaker today. The fever had apparently been there for most of the day and she wasn't eating or drinking much. I checked in with my staff again whether or not I should go in and he said I should as I had the best handle on the story but that he would be close behind. So a little bit nervously I went in while the nurse was still settling the girl into a bed. The parents actually seemed relieved to see me as I imagine they were tired of telling the same story over and over again. And right away I asked what happened on their follow-up yesterday. And they then admitted rather sheepishly that they hadn't come to our center yesterday. They'd driven to another small rural hospital a few hours away, where unfortunately there were also no scans or specialists, because they wanted a second opinion. They kept apologizing for this decision, and I kept trying to reassure them that it was okay, that they were, of course were just trying to do what was best for their daughter. Apparently, the doctor at the other hospital had ordered similar tests to what we had done a few days prior because this hospital was not in the same system as ours, so they couldn't see what we've already done. A repeat chest x-ray was done, which was normal, and blood tests were done. The white blood cell count was apparently 16 now, according to mum, but everything else had been within normal limits, and they were sent home with follow-up instructions. But this time, the patient had remained febrile and was quite tired and listless all day. The parents figured it was partially from spending every evening either in a car or in an emergency room, but they felt that this she was okay and as long as she was drinking, they'd be able to keep her at home. But in the late afternoon, she was napping when her mom heard a noise coming from her room. She ran in and saw her daughter's arms and legs shaking. And then suddenly the shaking stopped and from then on her daughter was very drowsy. Now it certainly sounded like a seizure that maybe her mom had caught the last few seconds of. And of note, the girl had been incontinent of urine again and she seemed to remain basically totally asleep for about 30 minutes before she started to come around. They came straight to the hospital and were brought straight in. Now it gets easy, right? This has gone from, oh, it's probably nothing to, okay, mm, this is the real deal. Full meal deal workup. Get going. Busy. Hello. 
When I examined her this time, she was febrile with a temp of 39, she was tachycardic at 124, and her rest rate was 32, but her blood pressure was totally normal. There were no findings on physical exam, except she was drowsy and had difficulty following commands. She seemed to have preserved sensation, but she could not cooperate with cerebellar or motor testing. She looked as if she was trying to complete the tasks, but she just couldn't make her limbs cooperate. I tried to have her sit up in order to get her up for gait testing, but very quickly I saw that this was not going to be possible. I scarpered out of that room and grabbed my staff. We called our referral center for a stat CT head, and while we were waiting for the transport team to be ready, my staff confirmed my exam findings. The transport team arrived, and she was taken to the referral center in an ambulance, and her distressed parents followed by car. There was a medical doctor on the transport team in case she deteriorated and needed an airway or perhaps an antiepileptic. But thankfully, she remained stable for the transfer, and she got her scan. And what did her scan show? It showed a 7 by 4 centimeter brain abscess with associated mass effect. Of course it did. Of course it did. Yeah, and you've been sitting on this girl for days. But you know what? For every 7 by whatever it was, 7 centimeter mass effect brain abscess, there's 99 kids that have a virus. The team there was only just starting to investigate why on earth a healthy young girl of 9 suddenly developed a brain abscess when we were actually chatting with them and we got a call from our lab to let us know that her blood cultures that we had done had rung positive for gram-positive organisms and they were felt to be staph. She went on to have surgical drainage of the abscess, but no source for those positive cultures was ever found. She had complete recovery and she was doing fine developmentally and physically when I last took a peek at her chart several months later. So it all turned out well in the end, but there were several things about this case that made me want to share it. So... Good discharge instructions are key, right? It can be very frustrating for parents to be told, just come back if it gets worse. But sometimes those are really important conversations that we have to have, and we have to remind parents that sometimes we need time to figure out what is going on. With the benefit of hindsight, of course it's easy to say, oh, we should have scanned her right away, or at least on the second visit. But are we really going to be scanning every kid with a few days of fever and no focal findings? Now, granted, I was certainly tempted to do so, uh, for the next bunch of kids I saw with fever because I was a little bit burned by this case, but you have to resist that temptation. You have to remember that the common things are common. So another issue that this case brought up was whether or not the same doctor should be reassessing a patient when they come back for ongoing symptoms. There are advantages and disadvantages to either approach, but of course a new doctor can think of something new that the previous doctors hadn't thought of. But at the same time, having the same doctor see the patient can be so helpful because you can really notice more subtle changes from baseline. I think what this really brought up for me and what this case highlighted for me was the value of discussing a case. Sure, if you're a resident, you discuss it with your staff. But if you're the staff, how do you feel about running cases by a colleague? This is actually one of the things I love most about the place where I now work. We have an open attitude to chatting about cases and bouncing ideas off each other. That collective hive mind can be so helpful. And there's no shame in asking for help. When this case was unfolding, I have to admit that it also made me feel a little bit defensive in some ways. Not because the parents were saying they didn't trust me or our hospital, but just because I was increasingly aware that we didn't have an answer. So I felt bad that we didn't have an answer, and I felt embarrassed. And this probably made me react differently than I would have if that patient hadn't been there on every single one of my evening shifts in a five-day period. The case also highlighted the perils of when hospital systems in neighboring areas do not share medical information. The family chose to seek a second opinion at a different hospital, and that hospital didn't have access to any of the tests that we had already done. I'm not faulting the family for this or for the doctors at the other hospital, because of course we would have done the same, but this delayed care 
It led to repeat testings and increased costs. Again, this is all easy to talk about once it's over and we're looking back through the retrospectoscope. And the other lesson I learned is that sometimes things just take time to figure out. I'm not sure anyone would have initially deduced or guessed that a healthy nine-year-old girl with intermittent fevers for three days would have a brain abscess. Or perhaps I'm trying to protect my pride, which of course, as we all know, is a very dangerous thing to do in medicine. Of course, I would have worked it out. No, actually, this is a really, really good case because it does bring up the fact that you are going to miss things in medicine. That is just the way it is. And you're going to have a very difficult time living with that if you didn't do a thorough job and gave the patient really good instructions about when and why and how to return. That's the key thing. You cannot work up everybody for everything, although you see people try and do that, particularly at the beginning of their careers, out of this fear of a case like this, the one in a thousand that you're going to miss that's a brain abscess in an otherwise normal kid. You just, you can't practice like that. You're just going to hurt so many more people than you help. So the key thing is exactly as occurred here. What is the differential diagnosis? There really doesn't appear to be anything going on here. I did a thorough exam. I did a thorough history. And then I told the family, return if things change. They don't get better. Return here, see me, or give them very time, symptom, and place-specific return precautions. There is absolutely no reason to feel bad about missing a disease early in the progress, which really is not diagnosable early in the progress. But if you missed it because you were rushed and you didn't do a thorough job, you're going to have a hard time living with yourself. So do a good job. Be thorough. Give good return instructions. And every now and then, something like this is going to happen. You're going to be like, hmm, nobody could have picked that up. Nobody. Primary Care Medical Abstracts with Ken and Steve. Well, welcome everybody. Great to be back for our annual spooktacular edition of PCMA. Yes, it is the October 2022 episode. I'm Ken Milne, and joining me to frighten you with facts, <laughs> scare you with some statistics, Steve Brown. So many tricks and maybe even some treats in this <laughs> October issue. Yeah, no, I, I saw the list of papers that you picked and I was like, oh yeah, there's some stuff to really dig into on this one, yes. So it is coming up to Halloween. Uh, will you be dressing up and going out for Halloween this year? We have a lot of kids in our neighborhood, so we end up giving out candy at our door. Oh, so you're the candy man. Okay. Sweet, sweet candy! Yeah. If you could dress up and we're going out, what would Steve Brown go out as? That's a good question. I've done Harry Potter-related things before. I've done Star Wars-related things before. I think listeners would have no problem guessing that I would go out as either Captain Kirk or Batman. I used to take the kids out and dress up and get totally into it. I mean, it was so much fun when the kids were little. Love Halloween. I think that it's got to be one of my favorite holidays. Absolutely. All right, let's get into these 10 papers, okay? So, abstract number one. Paper one. 
Oro is the new IV, challenging decades of blood and bone infection dogma. A systematic review. So, let's start this podcast with Release the Hounds. Yes, we're starting with a little dogmalysis. <laughs> the objective of this study was to see if intravenous antibiotic therapy is really required for the full duration of the treatment of bacterial osteomyelitis, bacteremia, and infective endocarditis. So these authors of this systematic review searched PubMed. Not that PubMed's bad, but that's all they searched. Now, they did find 20 trials, and they were looking for randomized control trials, and they found 7 for osteomyelitis, about 1,300 patients, 10 for bacteremia, about 700 patients, and 4 for endocarditis, about 800 patients. There was either no difference between IV therapy and oral therapy for osteomyelitis and bacteremia, or oral therapy was actually superior for endocarditis to IV for the outcome of mortality. Now, as you would expect, adverse catheter-related events were higher in the IV group. Spoiler alert. Call spoiler alert before you say things like that. They proposed clinicians should consider oral therapy for osteomyelitis, bacteremia, and endocarditis if all of the five criteria were met. So their five criteria were one. Listen, the patient has to be stable. They got to be clinically well enough to do this. Two. Surgical or procedural source control had been achieved if possible with no persistent bacteremia was their second criteria. Three. Third was that the patient was able to tolerate and absorb oral medication. So, you know, they couldn't be vomiting. They couldn't have a short gut syndrome or some kind of other issue that would prevent them from being able to absorb oral medications. Four. The fourth thing was a published regimen was available to clinicians with outcome data for the targeted pathogens of interest. Five. And the fifth and final of their five criteria for using oral therapy in these conditions was that there was no psychosocial or logistic reasons to prefer intravenous therapy. Now, I did mention earlier they did have this limited search strategy. Oh, I went to PubMed. I mean, I guess it's better than just doing a Google search. They didn't explicitly state that they followed the PRISMA guidelines. And most studies, they were small, and there was a, a lack of information on MRSA, which I like to see. But, you know, you look at the statistical heterogeneity, mortality, that's a pretty easily identifiable outcome. And so it was low. This is a game changer, potentially. We would like to have better evidence, but I love in the introduction how they talk about, we're just stuck on this. There was never evidence that IV was better. It was based on the antibiotics we had 50 years ago and them not really penetrating the tissues that we're talking about here. So we've not had enough evidence. The osteomyelitis was almost entirely weighted by one large RCT from 2019. So good for them. They measured treatment success, which is a good outcome. And this is a major barrier to care. We keep patients in the hospital too long especially patients that have unstable housing situations. It's very hard to get them a place where they can get IV therapy. So I agree with the authors here. We'd love to have some more RCTs, but they say it's time to change how we practice. And I think that's right. It's such an excellent example that we're often standing on pillars of salt and sand. Go back to the primary literature and say, why the heck are we doing it this way in the first place? 
And is IV superior? If the claim is we've got to use IV, then demonstrate it. That's where the burden lies. Demonstrate that it's superior. And those original trials, like you said, were decades old. And just being old doesn't make the information incorrect. But we're in different clinical situations now, and it's taking place in a different clinical context. And it is a very hard clinical situation to arrange IV therapy, outpatient IV therapy, or patients coming back for daily injections, or ultimately having to be admitted just so that they can get a once a day infusion of some intravenous antibiotics. So yeah, it could be a game changer. You heard it here, October 2022. PCMA. Yeah. And those five sort of targets that you need to hit are very useful. And the fifth one, which was, you know, there's not a reason why IV is better than oral. It's almost always the other way around. There's usually way more barriers to IV than there are to oral. Bottom line. It is reasonable to consider oral therapy for osteomyelitis, bacteremia, and endocarditis in certain clinical situations. Paper two. Abstract number two. Evaluation of the incremental value of coronary artery calcium score beyond traditional cardiovascular risk assessment, a systematic review and meta-analysis from JAMA Internal Medicine, June 2022. The USPSTF says there's insufficient evidence to assess the balance of benefits and harms from the use of what they call non-traditional risk factors, which includes coronary artery calcium score to prevent cardiovascular disease. No trials have found a difference in cardiovascular events based on use of coronary artery calcium screening. We can call that CAC if you like, or CACS, C-A-C-S. <laughs> exactly. I'm hacking up something. Exactly. I guess that would be hack. Yes. We can hack and CAC up something. What would be the potential benefits of this is that we, in theory, could have more accurate risk scoring that might lead to a change in management, such as adding a statin. And the ACCAHA says this test can be used as a tiebreaker. So you're not really sure how to treat the patient. Maybe a coronary artery calcium would help. There are potential harms, like radiation exposure, which the radiation amount is about 17 times higher than a chest X-ray. There are adverse psychological effects from abnormal tests. And then, of course, we know our favorite, which we've talked about on here, the cascade of further tests that come from false positives or incidental findings. So the authors scoured the literature to find studies that assess the additional gain from adding CACs to standard CV risk scoring. They used what they called a multiple iteration citation search relying mainly on the 2018 USPSTF systematic review. They screen title and abstracts and the full text, and they assess the risk of bias. So the results of this meta-analysis, they found six studies. Three were from the U.S., one each from the Netherlands, Germany, and South Korea. There were almost 18,000 patients with just over 1,000 coronary events in the studies. The risk of bias was mixed. The study confounding was unclear in most studies. So they report this as a C statistic, which is another way of saying that is a concordance statistic. And that's kind of similar to the area under the curve. So 1.0 is would be perfectly concordant, and 0.5 would be that it's not concordant at all. It adds nothing. And so the C statistic for cardiovascular risk models without coronary artery calcium scoring 
is between around 0.7 and 0.8. So that's pretty good. If you add coronary artery calcium scoring, you only add 0.036 to the C statistic, which is about a 5% relative increase. Relative. Yes, exactly. Patients classified as low risk by the risk score. So let's say you didn't do a coronary artery calcium. You thought they were low risk. They're reclassified to intermediate or high by the CACs. Still, almost all of those patients did not have a cardiovascular event over five to 10 years, 86 to 96%. Patients that were classified as high risk by your risk score, reclassified as low risk, also did not have a coronary event, 91 to 99%. So the authors conclude, Correctly, there's no evidence that suggests adding coronary artery calcium scoring to traditional risk scores provides clinical benefit. And this meta-analysis concurs with a a really great editorial from American Family Physician. I'll put the, the link in the notes. But basically, they say, quote, atherosclerosis is a complex lifelong disease, and wrongly simplifying it with coronary artery calcium testing helps the testers more than the tests did. I saw online prices ranging from $50 to $600 in the US, and it seems to be mostly not covered by insurance. Yeah, I agree with these authors and their conclusions. When I was reviewing it, I'm I'm thinking, you know, if you want to spend a bunch of money on something, could that money be better spent on things like, I don't know, social determinants of health, other primary preventions? I mean, that'll have a bigger impact than irradiating a bunch of people. And I do think we oversell the irradiation sometimes, you know, because it's theoretical and those types of things. But, you know, telling these people that they have this little tiny extra, like bit more of a risk factor, like you said, 5% relative, not absolute increase. So they got this tiny little bit more risk factor. Is that really going to motivate people to change? And are they going to take, you know, a statin because of that? Or they, you know, I, I just, I agree with the authors. I think it's much to do about nothing. Yeah, almost all the interventions for cardiovascular risk are things that we already know, and they're not yeah. going to change based on knowing if you have a whatever, like you say, a little atherosclerotic plaque. Yeah, like should you get out there and, and get out there and move every day and get a little exercise? Yeah. Should you stop smoking? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know. Should you uh, eat a healthy diet? And we can put quotes about whatever a healthy, you know, good diet is. Absolutely. Okay, so where does this change the conversation unless it's driving people into medications that they have to take for 10 years that most people won't get a benefit from and often they won't be taking it 10 years from now because of all the side effects or the cost? Yeah, and I love your suggestion to if only we could use the same resources that we're using for this test and send it upstream to address, you know, more lifestyle social determinants issues. Absolutely. Bottom line. Coronary artery calcium scoring adds little to traditional cardiovascular risk factors and is unlikely to change management. Paper three. Abstract number three. A cross-sectional examination of conflicts of interest disclosures of physician authors publishing in high-impact U.S. medical journals published in the BMJ Open. The results of this study should not really be much of a surprise. I sort of put it in the category of, hey, I'm going to read a Stephen King novel. Ooh, are you shocked that you got scared? (laughs) And it was like, oh, I was so scared when I read this. I just didn't 
expect this. <laughs> I mean, come on, people. Physicians are not better than others in voluntarily disclosing how much money they got. All right, so the objective of this study was to assess the accuracy of self-reporting financial conflicts of interest disclosures in JAMA and in the New England Journal of Medicine. So the researchers looked at any RCTs that were published in these two high-impact journals in 2017. They took the first and last author of each RCT, identified them, and then searched for them in the open payment database for the two years prior, because that lined up with their disclosure requirements for getting published in these journals. Now, authors were excluded if they weren't physicians, so you had to be an MD or DO degree, or you were excluded if you were not in open payment. Now, how do you get into open payment? Well, the primary outcome was the type of payment you did receive. Was it a disclosed payment, an undisclosed payment? Was it indeterminate or was it unrelated to the actual topic? And they define this in the manuscript with some examples to help you understand it. But what I was getting at was, if you're not in the open payment system, the U.S. government passed this little bill, I don't know, maybe some of the listeners have heard. I think it's summarized into Obamacare, but we're not a political show. So the actual thing is Physician Payment Sunshine Act as part of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act 2010. And any manufacturer reimbursed by Medicaid, Medicare, or the Children's Health Insurance Program had to submit information regarding payments received by physicians to the Center of Medicaid or Medicaid Service. So that's uh, CMS. So they found 62 articles in that 2017 year that met inclusion criteria of randomized control trials, half in each of those two journals. They identified 188 first and last authors and they received a combined funding of $7.5 million, Mr. Powers. Now, they had 106 authors, so that's about 90%, who received payment. 81% of them received payment that they didn't disclose. So they were undisclosed. 81, like four out of five didn't disclose. And almost half of the top 23, so... If you took the 23 highest amount, highest compensated authors, by the way, that was $6.3 million, okay? Almost half, 3 million of that was undisclosed. So I think this really is clearly exposing a problem in our current system of self-reporting financial conflicts of interest, at least within these two high-impact journals. And I, I want to say again, Financial conflicts of interest do not make the results or the interpretations of the results necessarily invalid or wrong. It's just another piece of information that we need to better critically appraise the research. And there are multiple lines of evidence that financial conflicts of interest can bias RCTs, systematic reviews, and even guidelines. It's like, you know, the process where we put in trial registries to try to protect against things like changing the methods later, post hoc analysis, outcome changes, those types of things. Unfortunately, there's evidence that this didn't work. And so now we have evidence that this type of thing of self-reporting your financial conflicts of interest don't work, at least in JAMA and New England Journal. Now, there are, might be other journals that are doing a fantastic job in this. I think it just should be a requirement for all journals to check to see once they receive their disclosure agreements, just like they should go off and check clinicaltrials.gov, they should go off and search this database and make sure, hey, did the disclosures 
match what's available in that database. And if they're not matching, it doesn't mean there's any ill intent or something like that necessarily. Just contact the authors and say, hey, until we clear this up, we can't publish this. So um, can you uh, clarify any discrepancies before we move forward? Thank you very much. Yeah, that's a great idea, Ken. I really like that. We often debate on PCMA, and we're going to talk about this in the next paper. How do we factor in disclosed conflict of interest? Well, now, a whole other level, now there's undisclosed. So I agree, that loophole has to be closed. And the the 2010 um, Affordable Care Act, Physician Payment Sunshine Act, has now given us the tools to do that. So let's close that loop. Yeah. And, you know, if, if we're talking a little bit about guidelines, you know, there are guidelines for writing guidelines. The Institute of Medicine published their document back in 2011 on guidelines that we can trust. And part of that was, how do you manage these financial conflicts of interest? And so if we're supposed to follow guidelines, at least the guideline writers, before they tell us to follow guidelines, and I'm just spitballing here, should follow their guidelines for writing <laughs> guidelines. I don't know. I know. I'm probably out on a limb here. But really, it's, it's about the known knowns, the unknown knowns, and the unknown unknowns, right? And if we don't know, how can we interpret? Because what we're looking for is the best evidence and to find the quote unquote truth. And when I say truth, I mean the best point estimate of an observed effect size with a confidence interval around that point estimate. And we know that financial conflicts of interest can bias that. And so if you're not aware of it, then you're, you're really working with only partial information. And I think the more information that you have with regards to that type of stuff, if they can affect bias, is important. Bottom line. Be skeptical of self-reporting financial conflicts of interest in JAMA and the New England Journal of Medicine. Paper four. Abstract number four, albuterol budesonide fixed dose combination rescue inhaler for asthma. This is in the aforementioned New England Journal of Medicine, June 2022. There's been a change in asthma management. Major national U.S. guidelines published after 2020 for both children and adults now recommend inhaled corticosteroids with a short-acting beta agonist, that's a SABA, as both a maintenance medicine and a rescue medicine. This is a major change from the way that we all grew up treating asthma. This is a so-called SMART strategy, single reliever and maintenance therapy, which has very good branding if you are <laughs> looking to, to change management. And we can talk about maybe what the motivation is for that. But yes, SMART strategy, single reliever and maintenance therapy. So these authors studied a comparison of rescue medication in patients with moderate to severe asthma who were already using inhaled corticosteroids as a maintenance medication. So remember, now we're talking about moderate to severe patients already using inhaled corticosteroids. This is a multinational study, 295 sites on four continents, randomized controlled trial to evaluate efficacy and safety of albuterol budesonide as opposed to albuterol alone as a rescue medication in those patients that I mentioned before. The patients were all receiving inhaled glutocorticoid-containing maintenance therapies, which were continued throughout the trial, and many were also receiving LABAs, or long-acting beta agonists. To enroll in the trial, patients had to have severe asthma attack in the previous year, and most patients had one of those. The patients were over 3,000 adults and adolescents greater than 12 years of age. 
They're randomly assigned to a low-dose budesonide group, a high-dose budesonide group, and an albuterol alone group. And the low-dose and the high-dose were combined with albuterol as rescue medications. The primary efficacy endpoint was first event of severe asthma exacerbation. And they did an analysis by intention to treat. So that's a patient-oriented outcome, a severe asthma exacerbation. What are the results? The risk of severe asthma exacerbation was reduced by a relative 26% in the high-dose inhaled corticosteroid group compared to albuterol alone. If you turn that into absolute terms, severe exacerbations were 34% with the ICS plus the SABA versus 42% with the SABA alone in one year. That's a number needed to treat of 17. The comparison to the low-dose ICS group did not quite reach statistical significance. There were fewer oral glucocorticoids used in the combo rescue therapy group, and there was no difference in adverse events in all the groups. Now here's where we get to the major caveat, the scary Halloween trick of this article. (gasps) The first draft of the manuscript was written by a writer employed by the maker of the combined medication. And the study was performed by a medical research company heavily engaged by pharma. (laughs) Multiple authors are employees of the two companies. And if you're wondering why might a company want to do a study like this, a budesonide inhaler alone, according to GoodRx, is $34. An albuterol inhaler alone, according to GoodRx, is $20. If you combine a combined medication in the U.S., Symbacort, which is actually budesonide and formoterol, is $260. So I would need to go into a little more detail to understand this, but I think you could see that this push for these RCTs and the push for the new guideline recommendations, you can imagine that that probably has some kind of conflict of interest behind it. You know, I started doing this series and I was told there'd be no math. But, uh, you know, uh, $30 plus $20 to carry the one. Just give me a moment, Steve. Oh, that's 50 bucks. You know, come on, 50 bucks versus 250 bucks, right? And remember, that's the number needed to treat of 17 as well. So only one of those people using that medication after 17, out of the 17, after one year, will have what? One less exacerbation. (sighs) Yeah, my, my big question mark was, how much will it cost? And of course, you know, was I looked up the same thing you did on good RX and the Formoterol and things like that. The number needed to treat, you know, is an interesting statistic. I like it because it, it it's simple and direct and you can sort of get your head around it, but it loses a lot of the nuance. And part of the nuance with number needed to treat is it won't matter if the patient can't afford the puffer. <laughs> you know, the number needed right. to treat won't be 17 if they can't afford 250 bucks. If they can afford 50 bucks, Really? So, so it takes place in this context. So that was my big question. If there is real no advantage outside of you got, you know, two things to holster as opposed to one thing to holster. Yeah, I'm, I was not impressed and my radar went off as soon as I saw the uh, conflicts of interest. Yeah. And an 8% absolute difference, that's for severe exacerbation. That's substantial. For people who are already on, who, who yeah. have severe disease though, remember, right. you know, cause you know that this will get indication creep and this will be like, right. You know, the the people that are not moderate to severe asthma that are taking a SABA already. 
Yeah, and so that seems pretty good, that 8% difference number needed to treat 17. So of course they presented that as, I had to do math to come up with the absolute benefit because they just reported as 26% improvement. So, but when you think about, okay, this is an ideal condition of a study. It's, you know, all the medication is paid for in the study and whatever, you know, tips and tricks they used to design a study to make it, you know, favorable to the medication because it was done by the company and a research team that, you know, is funded by pharma. That 8%, you can imagine that that kind of shrinks. And then if you add the indication creep to it, I'm worried that this is not generalizable and doesn't help that many patients. Yeah, I created a list a few years ago on the 10 commandments of evidence-based medicine. And one of them was, you know, uh, we shall we shall look for absolute risk reduction, not relative risk reduction. And as soon as I see that highlighted, a relative risk reduction, and then you have to calculate or figure out the absolute, that's always a red flag for me that somebody's trying to um, market something to me. Absolutely. Bottom line. This RCT with multiple conflicts of interest seems to support a smart approach to asthma management for moderate to severe asthma with both the rescue and maintenance inhaler containing inhaled corticosteroids. Paper five. Abstract number five, perianal application of glycerol trinitrate ointment versus tocopherol acetate ointment in the treatment of chronic anal fissure, a randomized clinical trial, and this was published in the Diseases of the Colon and Rectum 2022. Now, Steve has me on a program that I'm allowed one dad joke per episode, so here it is. We plan to get to the bottom of this issue because it can be a real pain in the ass. All the other jokes about Halloween don't count in this issue because this is a special issue. But that's my one dad joke for this month. It kind of had two dad jokes folded into it. So well done. It was a bongo. Buy one, get one. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Twofer. You know how I love a good deal. So the objective of this study was to evaluate the effect of a topical application of tocopherol acetate ointment on the pain relief and chronic anal fissure epithelialization compared to the standard treatment, which involves this topical nitrate ointment. So we got a vitamin E ointment and we got a uh, nitroglycerin ointment. Single center, unblinded patients with blinded outcome assessors, and it was a randomized control trial done in Spain. So patients with chronic anal fissures were included, and there was lots of exclusions listed. So they're in the manuscript. Chronic anal fissures were defined as persistent anal fissures despite being really good with your hygiene and dietary measures over more than a six-week period. So the nitrates are GTO for all the car enthusiasts out there. That's how it was abbreviated. The GTO was compared to the TAO, the T-A-O ointment. The primary outcome was anal pain measured on a visual analog score going from zero to 100 millimeters at two weeks and at eight weeks after beginning the treatment. They had some secondary outcomes about the healing rate and recurrence rate for both treatments 24 weeks after beginning the treatment and 16 weeks after finishing the treatment. They had 160 patients in this trial and the GTO decreased by 56 millimeters. The tau decreased by 67 millimeters giving a mean difference of about 11 millimeters that was statistically significant. 
And the recurrence rate was less for the tau group, 3% versus 13%. Again, statistically significant. So I picked this paper because I thought it was interesting, but it would have been more helpful if they had a topical anesthetic group, maybe a calcium channel blocker group, just as additional comparisons to say, what else do we have to offer these people? Because it really is a painful condition. It was unfortunate that they didn't blind or attempt to blind the participants, which could have mitigated some of the biases because they knew what treatment they were getting. Now, I understand it may be hard to blind them if they knew that the nitrates could cause them to get crazy headaches. And we see this all the time with people using nitroglycerin for their coronary artery disease. But you know what? Science is hard. And I think the attempt should have been made to blind it because if you're going to take patients, 160 patients, and put them through this, respect them as much as possible by doing the best possible study you can. And so blinding is a key component. And if it is possible, and I think it really was, they said, well, you know, to get a compounding pharmacy or something, you know, the quality of the calcium channel, hey, noise, okay? It's hard. Science is hard. If you're going to do it, do it right. And uh, I should mention that, you know, adverse events. And so there was a high withdrawal rate in the uh, nitroglycerin group or the GTO group due to these headaches. I appreciated that they did the study. I think it's a, sure. it's something that we see in our patients. And I, I, I like knowing that vitamin E oil is an option. Yeah, no. And I guess I'm just on the whole idea of we need less research that's better done rather than right. everybody doing research and spinning these people through all of these trials because it's just a lot of noise and not enough signal for me. So sorry, I didn't mean to be too harsh on the authors there. Typical Canadian. All right. You said it, not me. <laughs> Bottom line. There are multiple ways to treat painful anal fissures and work with your patients to find the one that has the greatest efficacy for them with the least side effects. Paper six. Abstract number six. A systematic review and meta-analysis, effectiveness and harms of contraceptive counseling and provision interventions for women. This is from Annals of Internal Medicine, May 2022. Half of pregnancies in the U.S. are unintended, and many patients have barriers to receiving contraception. And we don't really know the effectiveness and harms of contraceptive counseling and providing contraception. These interventions are really unclear, and actually the USPSDF makes no recommendation on contraceptive counseling. These authors performed a systematic review to assess the benefit of various methods designed to increase contraceptive use. They searched English language only, randomized controlled trials, in Cochrane, Medline, several other resources, and they looked at reference lists of key studies and, and other systematic reviews. They found 38 trials with over 25,000 patients, and the trials included interventions like enhanced counseling, provision of contraceptives, providing emergency contraception in advance, postpartum interventions, and also post-abortion interventions. And contraceptive use increased by a factor of 1.2 to 2.1 with the various interventions. The studies were generally not designed to assess the rate of unintended pregnancy, which is probably what we would want to know most. They did kind of look at, well, were there, were there any like harms of this? And they looked at STDs, which did not increase, and condom use, which did not decrease. So not surprisingly, contraceptive counseling and, and giving contraception increases use of contraception. 
including postpartum and after an abortion, the increase is actually quite small, and we don't know the impact on pregnancy. So since I was going off a bit about, you know, the search that was done before in a systematic review, they did a much better search in this systematic review. Now, they did limit it to only English, like you did mention, but, you know, that's okay sometimes because they don't have the resources, I guess, for translators. I also went off about blinding. They did not blind in it, but sometimes you can't blind. And so I get that. There was the possibility of some publication bias, but the authors went through their analysis and they didn't find any evidence of that. And like you said, it, you know, these studies weren't designed and intended for unintended pregnancies. But regardless of that sort of critical appraisal part, I would just advocate that data should drive our policies. Bottom line. Interventions to increase contraceptive use modestly increases contraceptive use. Paper seven. Abstract number seven. The scariest paper for me this month. <laughs> Comparison of trials using ivermectin for COVID-19 between regions with high and low prevalence of a disease I cannot pronounce. Strongolidiasis. How'd I do? That's great. Oh, thanks. I've been practicing. Yeah. Strongolidiasis, a meta-analysis, JAMA Open Network. So we've consistently, you and I, you know, have this sort of pack that we tried really hard not to cover too much about COVID on PCMA. There's lots of other resources and physicians were getting a tsunami of information and we didn't want to contribute to any of the noise. But I think this paper was important. So the question of the study was, does the prevalence of this nematode, strongolidiasis, interact with the risk of mortality in COVID-19 trials using ivermectin as a treatment? The authors followed the PRISMA guidelines to find 12 trials. They had about 3,900 people in those 12 trials. Now, two studies that they did find were excluded due to potential fraud or randomization failure. Data was dichotomized into subgroups, so regions that had a high prevalence of this disease versus those that had a lower prevalence of disease, and that's the strongolidiasis, and the cutoff was 8.1%. Now, they performed a mixed-effect meta-regression, or regressing the natural log, relative risk for all-cause mortality. Ooh, that's really nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, they wanted to, you know, how, how are these things connected with regards to the prevalence of the disease, to the outcome of the study by treating COVID-19? Now, the low prevalence regions, so if you had a low prevalence of this disease, it was not associated with a decreased mortality of using ivermectin for COVID-19. Now, in high prevalence regions for strongolidiasis, it was associated with a significant decrease in mortality. So this is a really interesting reminder, I think, for people that data has layers and nuances. And advocates of ivermectin need to consider that the positive mortality impact observed in some of the COVID-19 trials may very well be due to the association with strongolidiasis prevalence and not a causal relationship with ivermectin effectively treating COVID-19. Now, there are other variables that they could not control for in some of these trials, including the use of corticosteroids. And we know, I think it was the recovery trial showed dexamethasone had the strongest data for mortality benefit in the treatment of COVID-19. 
And so any steroid use in these trials could have confounded the results. In addition, there's been lots of reporting on on the quality, or should I say lack of quality, in the ivermectin literature, and including some cases of potential fraud. I just am so fascinated by the author's thinking to link this roundworm that this nematode that we've never heard of and, you know, doesn't necessarily cause illness that we know of. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's fascinating. So this this roundworm is seen more in socioeconomic disadvantaged populations, more in like humid, warm areas. Rural Appalachia is an example. So I just think it's fascinating that these authors sought to investigate this. Yeah, I dove into this literature a bit and pulled up some YouTube videos of some researchers who are talking about, you know, how these nematodes get in through the gut and get into the bloodstream. And once it gets into the bloodstream, causing havoc in other organs and stuff like that. And so you can see that if someone is in one of these areas where their health is compromised already by this, you give them an effective treatment for that, they're going to be more likely to survive a co- condition like COVID-19. And so they're not really treating COVID-19 and preventing COVID-19 mortality. What they're doing is treating the underlying medical problem, the root cause of their ill health to begin with. And COVID-19 was just the nudge that pushed them over the edge because their their baseline uh, was so poor to begin with. So again, I, I, I thought it was a great paper because it, it approached the literature and it gave a new concept of, oh, yeah, you could look at it this way. And it may not be a causal relationship. So I just thought it was important to throw in there for that reason alone. Bottom line. There's still no high quality evidence to support the use of ivermectin in the treatment or prevention of COVID-19. Paper eight. Abstract number eight. An estimate of the U.S. rate of overuse of screening colonoscopy. A systematic review. This is from Journal General Internal Medicine, May 2022. So... Trigger warning, low value care alert. Woot, woot, woot. Exactly. That's the official trigger warning for us. The USPSDF recommends colon cancer screening now in patients age 45 to 75 years every 10 years if the colonoscopy is normal. And in 2012, there were 6 million screening colonoscopies performed in the US at a cost of about $3,000 each. And so... You can think of colonoscopies that are completed either outside that age range or normal scope follow-up in less than 10 years. That's overuse. Those are non-indicated. So the authors performed a systematic review to find studies that address the overuse of colonoscopy. They used appropriate search methods, they independently abstracted the results, and they assessed them for bias. They found six studies with over 240,000 screening colonoscopies the overuse rate was between 17 and 25%. They speculate that possible factors for overuse, the fee-for-service system in the U.S., doctors recommending follow-up too early, see problem number one, and (laughs) the patient may be demanding a colonoscopy earlier, possibly due to advertising, public health campaigns that don't clarify who should be screened. So, My patients really complain about the bowel prep for colonoscopy even more than they complain about the procedure. There's a risk of bleeding and perforation with colonoscopy also. So this is telling us, you know, we really do need to think about overuse and avoiding overuse in colonoscopy. All right. So I'm going to give a rant alert because this is the Halloween edition and I'm going to be ranting scary things here. So 
The Achilles heel of all these overuse studies is they usually never quantify what's an acceptable percentage of overuse. And they judge overuse based on guidelines. And it's right there in the name. Guidelines. They are to guide our care, not to dictate our care. And what we're looking for is the right care. Not too much, not too little, just right. And many guidelines even have disclaimers that say something like, this is not intended to replace clinical judgment. And it's a reminder that EBM has those three pillars, the literature that guides our care, our clinical judgment, and the patient's values and preferences. And this is one of the challenges of research in medicine, is how do you take a study that involves a population and apply it to the individual? And there may be good reasons, very good reasons, why more scopes are done than following some age recommendation alone in a guideline. But back to my main point, what is the acceptable amount of overuse? Is it a nice round number like zero? Five percent? Is that the acceptable amount? Because we have five fingers? Is it uh, one constantine unit, i.e. seven? Seven percent? Because there's seven days in a week, so that's a constantine unit. Is it seven percent? Ooh, or should it be ten percent? Because that's the metric system. Like, so how much, quote, overuse is too much? So that's the question I have for you, Steve. How do we set that amount? (laughs) Well, so screening tests are by definition done in healthy people. And so the more likely it is to benefit, that's great. But everybody gets the same harms, right? Sort of. Although like in colonoscopies, for example, older patients have more likely to have perforation. Correct. So you'd really like to dial in to the group that has the the most likely to benefit. And I'm sure we could agree, for example, that someone who had a normal colonoscopy, they're not very likely to benefit at five years than someone who waits 10 years to have a colonoscopy. So, But in the data though, right, they didn't specify five years versus 10 years. They said if it was calendar date sooner than 10 years, correct? Right. Not how much sooner necessarily, right? Yeah. And so that's why I wanted to put what's the right number because we can all agree on the extremes. Yeah. So they said 17 to 25%. Okay. Yeah. So what's the right number? Is it zero? And can we agree that it's not zero? Because there will be some people that get screened for certain reasons that are not captured in guideline recommendations. Yeah. I guess I would say approaching zero because I would rather see us be more conservative with screening tests than being overly aggressive to provide benefit without providing harm. Yeah, no, and and I think we're on the same page. So you're you're a, like a single digit percentage? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and and so what that single digit is roughly is debatable, but that's okay with me. I just don't want to see, you know, cuz I I find a lot of the times with these sort of studies, it's sort of shaming a bit. At least I feel that, you know. Right. But I get this feeling like unless you're doing 0%, you're doing something wrong. And, and I just find that a little bit over the top. Well, and, and one of the, you know, not to belabor this conversation too much, but one of the real challenges that we have in medicine, especially in American medicine, is that there are certain people that are not getting any of the recommended screening tests. So that's called fidelity, like doing the things that we know work for more people rather than focusing on, you know, new technology or repeating things for people that have already had it. So I would love it if 
let's say you just pick 55 years old and we made sure that 100% of people got colon cancer screening at age 55 before we worry about repeating or doing it in 45-year-olds or doing it in 80-year-olds. So just a plug for fidelity, making sure that everybody, especially underserved people, have access to getting it at least once. Yeah, and that's why I sort of put in my rant there that I was riffing on was that what we're looking for is the right care. What is the right number? And sometimes it means less, right? So we need less screening, especially in some of these groups that are clearly not going to benefit from it. So I can say 25% is too much. I just don't know what the lower end of that is, right? And some groups need more care, right? Exactly what you were advocating for. And when it comes to this kind of stuff, I'm a minimalist. Like I'm actually a real minimalist with regards to... um, treatments and interventions in my practice in general. But I just, I just wanted to push back a bit about the, what is the right number? And that, that really, I wish in the discussion, they said, here's the number, here's the target, and here's what the rationale, here's our argument for why this is the target. They never say what the target is, right? but it's heavily implied that it should be a zero. Bottom line. 17 to 25% of screening colonoscopies performed annually in the U.S. are not indicated per current guidelines. Paper 9. Abstract number 9, randomized clinical trials for air cleaners to improve indoor air quality and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease health. Now, I thought this was a really interesting study on treating COPD based on the environment, the internal environment where someone lived. So the objective of this study was to determine whether the placement of these active, portable, high-efficiency particulate air cleaners with HEPA filters and charcoal cleaners or whatever could improve the morbidity in COPD patients. So they randomized, great, super, double-blinded. Yeah, they had the machines there whirring and running, but they pulled out the filters. Ah, SMRT the SMART trial. Uh, That's my Homer Simpson reference. I am the SMART. The population was former smokers, so they weren't current smokers, but they had to have moderate to severe COPD. And these participants got these high efficiency particulate air cleaners with these HEPA filters, carbon filters, or the sham device that was running and whirring and had the fan going and stuff. They just didn't have the filter to capture these particulate matter. Now, the primary outcome was at six months, and they used this St. George Respiratory Questionnaire, the SGRQ. Secondary outcomes were exacerbation risk, respiratory symptoms, rescue medication use, and the six-minute walk test, or the six-minute walk distance, the 6MWD. And that's where they get people up, and they say, okay, clock started, click, and they time them for six minutes and see how far they can walk. You know, shortness of breath limits that in these patients. So they recruited 116 patients with a mean age of 66 years and about 52% were female. There was no statistical difference in the primary outcome using an intention to treat analysis. Now, there were some statistical benefits in some of the secondary analyses, but I'm not going to go into those because hypothesis generating at best. But it's a very interesting study, I thought, Steve, looking at improving the environment to improve a patient's health. Go figure, clean air, clean water. (laughs) You know, we're talking like Maslow's, like basic needs right there on the bottom. Now, I should mention about a third of the patients that were screened to participate weren't included because when they measured the particulate matter in their house, it was okay. 
So they didn't get included in the study. So it was only people that had these indoor particulate matter above 10. I think it's nanograms per meters cubed, I guess it would be three-dimensional. So the intention to treat analysis only included 81% of the cohort. So you're kind of missing 19%. So that sort of makes me a bit concerned. A larger sample size may or may not have detected a statistical difference. Don't know. The use for longer than six months may also have demonstrated a benefit. So maybe it's not like, hey, you didn't become COPD overnight, over a week, over a month, or probably even over six months. So it might take more than six months to actually see a positive benefit with one of these machines. I absolutely love this study. This is my favorite study of the month. They do, you know, again, hypothesis generating. They look at the people that spend more time inside and those people are more likely to benefit from this. I love that they have the sham air cleaner. I think this is a very clever novel approach. And did you catch the acknowledgements at the end? They thanked Austin Air Cleaners for the company that provided the air cleaners. And they noted that they did not have any input on the study design, analysis, or manuscript preparation. So kudos to these authors and not allowing their their corporate sponsors to control their outcomes. To write the first draft, to conduct the research. Exactly. And to be authors on the paper, yeah. You see, it can be done, Steve. We can raise the bar. I think that this is definitely worth more research. Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's encouraging, it's optimistic. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a positive skeptic. You know, the time to accept a claim is when there's sufficient evidence to accept a claim. That doesn't exist right now, but it certainly is not a settled science thing and we need to continue to look into this. Bottom line. These high efficiency particulate air cleaners cannot be recommended to improve the morbidity of patients with moderate to severe COPD based upon this trial. Paper 10. Abstract number 10 for me is definitely the scariest paper of this month. Celebrating Halloween and definitely not a treat. This is a the AGA, American Gastroenterologic Association, clinical practice update on deprescribing of proton pump inhibitors, an expert review, April 2022 from Gastroenterology. Guideline review. And I picked this because we've talked a lot on PCMA about overprescribing and deprescribing proton pump inhibitors. And so I thought maybe we could get some practical guidance here. And we know that unnecessary prescriptions increase cost, may lead to harms like pneumonia, fractures, and C. diff infections. If you listen back to the June 2020 review and perspectives from Hobie, there's a longer discussion on this topic from our extended family of Right on Prime. So this guideline makes recommendations for deprescribing PPIs and comes to us from the American Gastroenterologic Association. They use the term expert review in here and whatever that means. And this is a classic BOPSAT guideline. A bunch of people sitting around a table. It's actually more like optostat because there's only three people sitting around the table. There was no systematic review, no formal rating of quality of evidence or strength of recommendation. They don't mention the conflicts of interest. There are no patients or primary care physicians that are involved in this guideline. So this is 
like the poster child for what not to do in creating a guideline. Do you have thoughts on the methodology before I tell you their recommendations, Ken? Uh, no, you, I, you've covered it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Not I a mean, well you, done guideline. Yeah, well, I mean, come on. You know, it's just uh, like you said, three people sitting around, you know, handing out the gospel, I guess. Yeah. So their recommendations, some, most of them are not particularly controversial. You should regularly review the indication for your patient being on a PPI. You should consider a trial of deprescribing. Anytime a guideline uses the word consider, you're like, thanks a lot. That's why I'm reading the guideline is because <laughs> I was considering it. And they use, I should have control F search for consider because they use that word a lot in here. They say to consider once daily PPI if the patient's on twice daily. They mention multiple sort of more severe diseases that you should not consider discontinuation with. They mention assessing for risk of GI bleeding, which I thought was a pretty useful recommendation. Don't stop PPIs in people at high risk of bleeding. Tell the patient there may be rebound if they try to stop or cut back. They say either tapering or abrupt discontinuation is reasonable. And the kicker, you should base your decision to stop solely on the lack of an indication, not on the concern for adverse effects. So they, like many papers have, they really downplay the adverse effects and focus more on like, you should stop if someone doesn't really need it, which makes sense. So if you're making a guideline, this is what not to do in creating a guideline. This is not a well-done guideline. Yeah, and they give the 10 best practices. I would have suggested one more uh, to make it 11, my second favorite number, and the 11th one to follow the theme that you've laid on the table here, Steve. Consider not prescribing them in the first place. Right. Oh, yes. Th yes, thank you for that. I considered whether or not I was going to prescribe it. That's number 11. Bottom line. No new evidence is provided here on the benefits, harms, and strategies for transitioning patients off PPIs. All right, that's the October edition. We love comments. We keep getting more comments. So why don't we throw it out there and say, hey, what was your scariest abstract this month? Was it Ken trying to pronounce some nematode he'd never heard of? What was your scariest one? This last one about how not to write a guideline? Yeah, definitely. Uh, let us know. We, we, you know, we love engaging with the audience. And so the more you can interact with us, the better we find it. Thanks all. We'll talk to you next time. sum this all up. Summary. We're starting out the summary as always with PCMA. PCMA, Article 1. Oral is the new IV, challenging decades of blood and bone infection dogma, a systematic review in the American Journal of Medicine in March 2022. When we think of infectious conditions that require IV antibiotics, Things like osteomyelitis, bacteremia, and infective endocarditis are usually on the list. But what if they don't need to be? What if oral antibiotics would be sufficient? So this is the question that this systematic review asked. Though their search criteria was perhaps a little bit limited, it looks like we might be able to use oral antibiotics for these conditions. 
consider preferring oral over IV treatment if your patient meets the five following criteria. If they're clinically and hemodynamically stable, if surgical or procedural source control has been achieved, if the patient is likely to be able to tolerate and absorb oral medications, and if a published and recognized regimen is available that helps you know how to target these pathogens, and lastly, if there's no psychosocial or logistical reasons to prefer IV therapy. Less IVs would be a good thing. I love it. I love the idea of getting more oral meds out there for these conditions. All right, paper number two. Evaluation of the incremental value of a coronary artery calcium score beyond traditional cardiovascular risk assessment, a systematic review and meta-analysis from JAMA Internal Medicine 2022. So this meta-analysis of around 18,000 people looked to see whether adding a coronary artery calcium score to usual cardiac risk stratification scores would improve clinical outcomes for patients. Well, it turns out that adding this score to those risk calculations for patients did not provide clinical benefit so you can feel free to skip it. Use everyone's time and money in better ways to improve your patient's health. Paper 3, a cross-sectional examination of conflict of interest disclosures of physician authors published in high-impact U.S. medical journals and BMJ open in April 2022. Is there anyone out there who does not have an undisclosed conflict of interest? Heidi, I've been meaning to tell you something. But uh, the more we delve into this, really, the more disheartening it becomes. This study looked at undisclosed self-reported conflict of interest for JAMA and New England study authors. And here's some of the numbers they found, Vanessa. 188 authors received a combined funding of $7.5 million. And 86 of these people received payments that were not disclosed. The study authors found them by, you know, looking at other ways to discover this information. So what I want to know is why? Why aren't authors disclosing potential conflicts of interest? Is that they legitimately forget about it? Is that they're worried that their research and reputation would be at risk if people found out about it? I don't know. I don't know. It's discouraging. But uh, I'd say it's definitely time for us to stop relying on self-reported conflict of interest and to maybe do our own homework. Yeah, I always find it interesting when you go to a conference and people, you know, quickly flash the slide up at the beginning of their talk saying, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. And I'm like, we seem to take that pretty face value. And I guess it's because we're part of a profession, but maybe we need to be a little bit more skeptical. Imagine that. Color me skeptical. (laughs) Paper 4, Albuterol and Budesonide Fixed-Dose Combination Rescue Inhaler for Asthma, New England Journal of Medicine in June 2022. So when Ken and Steve first started chatting about this study, looking at whether strategies for both maintenance and rescue regimens in moderate to severe asthma should be based on a combo SABA and ICS, I was kind of intrigued. But my intrigue quickly turned to disappointment and frustration, as so, so many of the authors were tied to the company behind this combo puffer. And the costs of the combo puffer were really prohibitive. I'm afraid this whole study smells of bias. And let me tell you, bias does not smell good. (laughs) Something stinks here. Paper 5. Perianal application of glyceryl trinitrite ointment versus tocopherol acetate ointment in the treatment of chronic anal fissure, ARCT, in diseases of the colon and rectum in March of 2022. 
Anal fissure management is tricky, and it's always good to see research done to figure out what is the best option. And so I was happy to see this study that looked at these two options. I've been preferentially prescribing the trinitrite, but this study did show superiority of the tocopherol. So I think I'm going to do a switch. And I do agree with Ken that I would like to see a head-to-head trial of these medications against other treatment options like calcium channel blockers. Paper number six, Effectiveness and Harms of Contraceptive Counseling and Provision Interventions for Women, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, May 2022. This study looked to see whether having counseling sessions around contraceptive use actually resulted in greater rates of contraceptive use. Not surprisingly, the counseling did increase use by a small amount, but what is perhaps surprising is that these studies do not go that one step further to see if the counseling sessions actually resulted in fewer unwanted pregnancies, which seems to me like the main goal of contraception. But what do I know? I guess they're taking in baby steps, (laughs) one step at a time. Okay, paper seven, comparison of trials using ivermectin for COVID-19 between regions with high and low prevalence of strongyloidiasis, a meta-analysis in JAMA Open Network. So this is a question that many of us have wondered. If ivermectin did indeed have an impact on COVID-related mortality, did it do so because the people in the study had an other comorbid infection that the ivermectin was actually treating, like... perhaps strongylodiasis? Well, this study showed that areas with more prevalence of strongylodiasis did indeed end up with a lower mortality rate. So I'm personally filing this thing under things that make me think ivermectin really has nothing to do with COVID mortality, as we all knew already anyhow. Paper 8, an estimate of the U.S. rate of overuse of screening colonoscopy, a systematic review from the Journal of General Internal Medicine, May 2022. This systematic review was trying to assess the rate of overuse of colonoscopy as a screening tool for colon cancer in the United States. Based on current guidelines, the studies found that between 17 to 25 percent of screening colonoscopies could be considered as an overuse of that screening modality. Now, those are big numbers in my mind, but as Ken pointed out, what is perhaps the most interesting and challenging question here is what do we consider to be an allowable overuse rate? Sure, ideally the answer would be zero, but life isn't like that. So I guess the advice really is to check that you were following screening guidelines so you are doing your part to keep that number low. Paper 9. Randomized clinical trial of air cleaners to improve indoor air quality and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease health from the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine. Let's cut right to the chase here. This study found that air cleaning filters made no difference in morbidity for those with moderate to severe COPD. And this saddens me because I would far rather prescribe air filters instead of steroids for my patients with COPD. But perhaps they'll do a trial with a larger sample size and maybe we'll see the results that I'm hoping for. Maybe. Paper 10, the AGA Clinical Practice Update on Deprescribing of Proton Pump Inhibitors, the Expert Review in Gastroenterology, April 2022. Technically, this paper was an American Gastroenterology Association expert review on deprescribing PPIs, but what it seems to actually be is an excellent example of how not to write a guideline. Three people sitting around a table chatting, and that's how they publish a guideline. Boo, hiss. Sure, their recommendations were fine, but ugh, there was nothing really new here in my books, and they certainly didn't impress me with their methodology. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Let's move on to the rest of the show. And on Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee, Hobie and I talked about looking after our colleagues. 
as in being their doctor. And while it is an honor to do so, it is not always easy. So we talked about different things like overcoming imposter syndrome, how to set boundaries with these patients, and recognizing the fact that our physician colleagues are far more likely than the average patient to be concerned that their symptoms represent a terrible diagnosis. The Generalist. On this month's Generalist, Jake and I sat down for a wee chat about C. difficile. Remember the glory days when C. diff was something we only saw occasionally and really only seemed to come from recent antibiotic use? Well, the whole C. diff field is a lot more complicated now, and Jake really helped break this down into manageable bite-sized chunks of information. Bite-sized C. diff chunks. Oh, gosh. How could you skip that? Prostatitis. Justin Bailey, our family doctor extraordinaire from Idaho, joined us to talk to us about prostatitis, and he reviewed everything from diagnosis to management. It's a super overview and a good reminder that we can manage most of these patients, but that we should involve our urology colleagues should we come across a complicated or recurrent cases. Diet Culture And then we moved on to a section with Dusty Narducci. Now, this was a topic about diet culture. And like many of us, Dusty has a bone to pick about diet culture, about the beliefs that permeate societal and medical cultures that bodies have to look a certain way and that bodies that differ from this standard are therefore unhealthy and undesirable. You and she talked a lot about the healthy at every size movement, about intuitive eating and the anti-diet culture. This segment may raise your hackles as it challenges our traditional approach to caring for patients with larger bodies, and it's meant to. Message us if it does, because we really want to keep this conversation going. Perimenopausal contraception. Perimenopausal contraception. Penny Wilson joined us here to talk about contraception in this life phase, and a lot changes in the perimenopausal years, but one thing that doesn't change is the need for contraception. So there are a few principles to think of in this age group. The long-acting reversible contraceptive measures, the LARCs, especially the levonorgestrel ones, are fantastic here because it's reliable contraception and good for problematic bleeding as well. And another quick note about the combined oral contraceptive pill. Remember to stop these in patients who are at high risk of cerebral vascular disease, but in general, it's safe to continue these in many until around the age of 50. NSAIDs. And our urgent care piece this month came from our new and exciting urgent care podcast, UC Max, where Gita Pensa and Brian Hayes chatted about NSAIDs. So many awesome pearls here, including one that I really hadn't been aware of before. Well, more than just one, but the one that really stuck out was that the combination of NSAIDs and SSRIs can cause GI irritation. Yet another piece of info to share with your patients. Rural Medicine Talks. And then rounding out the month, we have rural medicine, where I talk about a case I had of a young girl with a fever. This fever kind of dragged on, and it left us all a little bit stymied. But eventually, well, you have to tune in to hear the story. Sorry, I'm not going to give this one away. That wraps it up for us here on Right on Prime for the month. But if you still have a hankering to learn more, head on over to MRAP for more of that acute medicine. Listen to EMA if you want a deep dive on emergency medicine literature or check out our HD videos if you want to see how to do those procedures that you might have to do. And of course, there's always Corpendium, which is the online emergency medicine textbook, which is always being updated and is constantly evolving. So until next month, when we see you in November 2022, we're signing off for now. And of course, until then, keep doing what you do. Because what you do matters. <laughs>